When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. One of the frustrating things for me as a consumer of news is that when you see a lot of news stories about a lot of legal issues, particularly if there's a political bent to them, as so many of the stories involving President Trump happen to have, uh, or President Biden for that matter, it seems so difficult to actually get straight legal analysis. Instead, we often get political commentary disguised as legal analysis. What we've done today is we have assembled a collection of four of the brightest legal minds in all the country that are willing to be awake at this time. And we're going to try and un- separate fact from fiction, hyperbole from history, and actually get our heads around what's happening in this country legally, particularly as it relates to the uh, raid at Mar-a-Lago and what the legal implications of, uh, of that raid are. Here is a solemn promise. I will tell you that uh, after... An hour from now, you will be better educated and have a more thorough understanding about what's happening in the law and what's happening in the news than you do right now. Let me first welcome our East Coast uh, judge, Judge Phillips Trenary, retired supervising judge of the New York City Civil Court in Richmond County. He was also uh, an acting state Supreme Court justice. He's also the author of Filing and Winning Small Claims for Dummies. Judge Trenary, it is great to see you. How are you? Good being here with you this evening. Uh, I'm usually listening to you after I wake up from my pre, <laughs> pre-sleep nap before I go back to bed. I give you a lot of credit. I reached out to a lot of New York retired ju- judges that were at that Yankee-Met game today, and uh, all of them said, nah, it's after the game. I don't really want to come in at 1 a.m. You were the one that had the gumption to come in, so well, thank you. Well, you seem to be having so much fun doing this. I figure i got to come exactly. in. Exactly. You'll see. You'll see how fun it is. Let me also welcome uh, Judge Jim Gray, the former presiding judge of the Superior Court of Orange County, California, former libertarian candidate for vice president and an author of several books, also a pretty accomplished playwright. Judge Gray, it's great to talk with you. Thanks for joining us. Well, thank you, Frank. I'd say good good morning, but it's actually still good evening in California. It's well, always good to be with good people. I guess that's why we had a much easier time getting uh, Pacific time zone judges than East Coast time zone judges. Let me also welcome Judge uh, Herb Dodell, the host of the radio show For the People, a uh, California Superior Court judge pro tem and author of the book From the Trench to the Bench, Navigating the Legal System and Finding Your Spiritual Path Along the Way. Judge Dodell, it's great to to talk with you. Thank you, Frank. Nice to be with you again as well. And it is uh, a real pleasure to welcome for the first time 
Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell, someone who's incredibly accomplished, someone who was not only the first female African-American judge in Northern California and the first female African-American Superior Court judge in Santa Clara, California. She's a retired judge of the Superior Court in California, former independent police auditor for the city of San Jose and a and former assistant dean at Stanford Law School. And uh, Judge Cordell, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Frank. Uh, being the only woman of your four judge guests, I, I will tell you, I will definitely hold my own. <laughs> of that, I have no doubt. Of that, I have no doubt. All right. Uh, so we have Judge Stranieri here, Judge Dodell, uh, Judge Cordell, and Judge Gray. Uh, the big story that everyone's talking about in legal story, in legal circles, in political story, in political circles, happens to be this uh, this Trump investigation, which every day it seems like there's more news on this. The News came out yesterday that uh, President Trump and his legal team is pushing for a special master to be appointed to review some of the evidence involved here. Uh, Adam Schiff, who is uh, a Californian, like three of the judges that are joining us this hour, he had this to say on the request for a special master. This is very serious business. When uh, documents have those markings, it generally indicates that the source of information is very sensitive. How did the FBI justify raiding Malargo and spending nine hours in the president's house? The affidavit's going to have them tell publicly now what they told the court they were going to go find. Uh, so that was Adam Schiff on one of the cable news shows. I've sort of lost track on uh, who's appearing where. Uh, let me begin with you, Judge Dranieri. Uh, uh, that's the East Coast in-studio privilege that we'll give you. There seem to be sort of two aspects that uh, people are worked up about this investigation. The fact that a former president and future presidential uh, candidate's house could be raided to begin with, but also the manner in which the FBI has handled this. What's your take, and where do you see this investigation going? So, so first of all, language is important, right? So if you're a Trump supporter, almost everybody calls it a raid. If you're not a Trump supporter, you call it execution of a search warrant. <laughs> so um, I think that's one of the first things that we have to look at. Um, I, 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 every once in a while, I have to check my constitution, to make sure it doesn't say, except for, vice, for Donald Trump in it, because you get the feeling sometimes that there's a uh, that Donald Trump does not have the same rights as other people. I'm not saying what happened here does or does not, but anything he does seems to be questioned, investigated, and whether he should be or not is a different issue. But um, the There's many, many, many legal issues involved in this. Uh, as I read this, this, the press uh, on it, it, it seems to me you get um, into it, what are the facts and what aren't the facts. What, was was his team cooperating or they weren't cooperating? That's not shouldn't be in dispute. Either you were or you weren't. Um, and with a lot of the, these type of cases, it, especially in the media, that's what we get. Now, as a judge, sometimes you'll listen to a, a case and you'll say, boy, I just heard the plaintiff's case. Why is the defendant even bothering to waste his time, right? You know, and then the media will put, mm -hmm. or someone put forth that narrative. Well, we're supposed to hear both sides. And, and, and you don't make a decision until you hear both sides. So I, I think he, his team taking some of these issues into back into the court system and having a special master maybe we'll clear up some of the ambiguities that we're getting 
and the spinning that uh, everybody wants to put on it. Uh, Judge Gray, one of the things that we were hearing a great deal from the pro-Trump crowd in the aftermath of the search warrant being unsealed was, oh, the search warrant's not good enough. We have to see the affidavit. It does appear that the judge in this case does want uh, the affidavit to to be revealed, and he doesn't want it to be redacted to the point that we don't get much information out of it. How significant will the affidavit being revealed here be in terms of having a fuller understanding of what's happening with this case? Frank, it's really quite significant. It's also rather unprecedented or certainly unusual to release an affidavit at this point. But obviously, everybody knows what's going on now. And the more clarity we can get for everyone, the better. So I think all things being equal, it should be released. And in unless it's really going to harm an investigation or put people's lives at risk, it should be pretty much unredacted. By the way, you know, it's just easy to demagogue these things, but we need to slow down and to make sure that we understand the facts because I'm hard, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but life is complicated. Uh, again, I'm sorry to be so blunt, but it's true. And, and the FBI through all of this, it really disturbs me. The FBI must not only be totally divorced from politics and coercion and taking sides, but but it also must be seen as being neutral and and they're under attack. And that concerns me deeply. Uh, Judge Cordell, do you think any of the criticism of the either the FBI or the Department of Justice in the execution of this search warrant is warranted? Uh, With the little that we know, I believe it is it is not warranted. The criticism of the FBI and of the Justice Department. What what I'm concerned about is that we're, we're really not looking at what's happening here. This is the first time that the Trump folks have even weighed in at all. And this search happened a few weeks ago. So what we end up with people saying, well, this is an unprecedented search. Well, this was an unprecedented presidency. Um, and that's why this search even happened. Um, the, the Trump the Trump people and the lawyers, they are masters at at distraction and delay. And that's really what this is. They chose to file in a federal court that was almost 70 miles away when there's a federal court nearby Mar-a-Lago. Why? Because the judge at 70 miles away is a Trump appointee, Eileen Cannon. So this is just judge shopping. It is delay. Uh, The magistrate who has this case is going to determine what in this affidavit, if anything, can be revealed. And I I stress, I... During my nearly 20 years on the bench, and again, I'm not a federal judge, but the rules are basically the same. I had to to sign off on search warrants and on arrest warrants, and it's the affidavit that has everything and all the information in it. And normally we wouldn't be concerned, but the subject matter of this is confidential, top-secret information. So to say that, oh, the affidavit should – just everybody should read it, no – uh, redactions are going to be necessary, and I really question whether or not it can be opened at all, only because there are threats going around and people who are giving information in support of this affidavit are concerned about their own safety. Uh, Judge Dodell, where do you see this going from here? How, where do you see an investigation going? Do you think indictments might be likely, including possibly for former President Trump? Well, if you look at the Presidential Records Act, it tells you what the president, a former president, can do and cannot do. And as the other, my colleagues have said, a lot of this is really going to be 
debated and litigated, and it's probably true that the Trump people do do what she said they do do, but every litigant does that. And the reality is I think it will make no difference ultimately what's released and what's not released because it's really a political issue. I think ultimately the affidavit is the affidavit. It was signed off by a legitimate judiciary officer, and if the affidavit meets the requirements of probable cause and the other elements that are necessary to get a warrant issued, then so be it. We'll find out later. I, I agree that a master makes sense. I think it may, depending, of course, on the assignment. But the ma master is going to look at everything in, in what they call in camera, and is going to decide whether or not it may involve a person's jeopardy, life, and, and otherwise, or not, whether or not a privilege is going to apply or not. The statute itself is kind of broad. If you read it, it starts with whoever willfully and unlawfully conceals, removes, mutilates, obliterates, or destroys or attempted to do so, or with the intent to do so takes and carries away any record, proceeding, map, etc., etc., is a felony. And be fined or, prison, or imprisoned for three years or, or both. So the reality really is, is there sufficient evidence to support any indictment that might come out of this? And from what we hear, and again, I think you said it very well, Frank, the reality is that you hear it from one side or the other, and most people listen to only one source of information. And so they only see one side versus the other. And Judge Stranary is absolutely right. You've got to hear both sides. You don't hear both sides. And that's my complaint, by the way, about the, the January 6th committee. It's a bottom line, one-sided, uh, with no cross-examination. But the, the matter here is there are so many issues. The broadness of the statute, it's going to end up getting litigated no matter what happens. So I don't think the disclosure do anything more than make them look as bad as they can make them look. Yeah, well, let's put aside the issue of the January 6th committee for, for the moment, because that's uh, certainly a whole whole other hornet's nest. Uh, Judge Cordell, one of the issues that we've heard a great deal about is the president's ability to declassify material. Uh, President, apparent, President Trump said that he declassified all these documents, gave an executive order that anything that was boxed and sent to Mar-a-Lago was declassified, and uh, some of the people that are that are Trump critics and the critics of uh, how the Trump team has handled this, they're essentially saying, well, it's still top secret. It doesn't matter if these nuclear secrets are declassified. That wouldn't affect the potential violations of the law. From where you see it, would that matter if these documents are declassified or not? Well, first of all, we none of us have seen this, quote unquote, standing order that Trump um, allegedly made. So we, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't even exist. Um, so the issue becomes, and, and I stress again, we are, the four of us, your guests here, we're all state court judges. We are, we're not experts in, sure. in the federal world. But w having listened and read enough about this issue, uh, you know, I, I know we're all competent to, to weigh in. Um, so what, the, the basic question that always hits me is what is a former president president doing with boxes, hundreds of hundreds of documents that are top secret. What in the world is he doing with them? Uh, so, I mean, that's just th this just makes no sense to me from the beginning. And yes, there are federal statutes that state that you can make all the standing orders you want. You want 
if there are documents that violate certain statutes, federal statutes, then that's a violation, regardless of what you say you have done with respect to declassifying it. Uh, Judge Gray, from a legal perspective, does it matter whether Donald Trump wanted these for his memoirs or if he wanted them as a souvenir or if he wanted them for some other some uh, as a memento of some some sort? Does that affect the the legal rationale behind this uh, this execution of a search warrant? Well, uh, Frank, I'm afraid this is really out of my area as well. Uh, Classified documents uh, should they, they, that should mean something. A president can declassify, but under most circumstances, uh, there's there's some limitations of that. But the answer is I don't know. Uh, but we should get honest information out there. We're we're hearing so much demagoguery mm. on all of this, and the more information and facts we have, the better our country will be. Uh, do, you, do you think that uh, you know? Did, did Donald Trump go through his uh, before he left? Was going through boxes saying, "I want to keep this. I don't want to take this." You know, I, I, I somehow I don't think that that's something he actually did. So the question may be, did he say, you know, everything in, from this day forward, mm. just pack up. I want to take it, or did did he did someone make the decision of what to take and not to take? And did he was he even involved in those decisions? I mean, that's also part of the speculation. There has been a lot of uh, a lot of question and a lot of comparison to both the Sandy Berger situation where uh, Sandy Berger stole uh, some classified documents and tried to conceal them in his pants when he was visiting the National Archives and the Hillary Clinton email investigation, which a lot of uh, conservatives were upset, didn't result in, um, you know, at least a grand jury reviewing the emails and her handling of certain emails here. Uh, Judge Trenary, where do you see this, the Trump investigation? Again, admittedly, none of us know all the facts here, but uh, where do you see this investigation as compared to the Hillary Clinton situation or the Sandy Berger situation? Well, I think Berger took a plea, I think, to a misdemeanor, right? right? Uh, Hillary, nothing happened to Hillary Clinton, but Comey uh, did that statement right before the election where he's where if you follow the logic, it sounds like he's going to say we're going to indict her. Then he says, but it's not doesn't reach the level. Therefore, we're not and no no prosecutor would uh, do it, uh, do an indictment based on the, these facts. Um, again, was that political or not? Or was, you know, is, is that is that the standard? We, we really we really don't know. And we're still going to be speculating. You know, part of the problem is in as judges. You know, someone comes in with an affidavit for a search warrant or in any other situation or any public servant. We're assuming that everybody is doing their job, that they're acting mm-hmm. in good faith, especially with criminal matters. We want we, we want the, the, the police and whoever's prosecuting to act in good faith. And if you're not acting in good faith, then the whole system collapse, collapses. So, you know, irrespective of if this is Donald Trump. Well, you or me getting a parking ticket, um, we, people have to act in good faith. Let, let me ask everybody, is there a danger with so many of the so many uh, Trump supporters in the country questioning the motives of the FBI and questioning how the FBI has handled this? Is there a, a danger that 
uh, with uh, undermined confidence, at least on the part of some Trump supporters in the FBI, that that could jeopardize future trials that FBI agents need to testify in, where the credibility of the FBI agent in those trials is integral to getting a uh, a conviction. Uh, Judge Gray, I know you've been certainly critical of certain excesses of law enforcement agencies before. What's your take on what this means for the future of the FBI and the public's perception of the FBI? Frank, it's extremely important, categorically important for us to have faith in our institutions. I I tried to say earlier, the FBI should not only be neutral, but should be seen as being neutral. We as judges have two mandates. One is to do justice as best we can under the facts and the law and the ethics of our profession. The second is equally important, and that is for people, anyone who cares to believe justice is being done. And today our institutions are under attack, and it's from a lot of lack of transparency. We must get honest information out there to the public. after January 6th, and I know you didn't want to talk about this, but I wrote publicly that we should have a neutral commission look into any mm. voting irregularities that were alleged and any and whatever happened to cause that riot in, on January 6th. We need to have it be neutral. We need to have our country respect the process and, and understand the results that are explained to them. And we're getting away from that rather heavily, and it's deeply disturbing to me. Judge Dodell, what do you think? I think that uh, Judge Gray is absolutely right. I think if you're looking at what motivation was involved with Trump's taking the documents, ultimately, to a large degree, it makes no difference. Because if you look at Section 2071 of the uh, of the Act, it makes it very clear. It uses the word "carries away any record, proceeding, map, book, paper, document, or other thing, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. And any means any. And I don't think the facts are that much in dispute, but I do think that most of this is political. I think if if you look at at history, they all were doing the same thing. If you look at the historical record, Ronald Reagan tried it, and so did Clinton, and nothing ever happened to it. With Hillary Clinton, it's a different story altogether. But the reality is, judges, we have to look at the statute. We have to follow the law. And the question that's asked me about future running for Trump running for president, the answer is it's really not undetermined, but I suspect there's two possibilities, one he is or one he isn't. And an argument is being made by many constitutional scholars that you have to look at the Constitution and it succeeds uh, any statutes that are around. So the question really is, does that mean that because the Constitution doesn't have this as a requirement or a prohibition, he can run again? It's an interesting question. A lot of what we're talking about tonight and what all of us talk about is where is this going to go? It's going to be litigated in some court someplace with, a, at the moment, a majority of conservatives. And the reality is he's got some exposure one way or the other. And ultimately, it really doesn't matter what his motive was. Who cares? Uh, Judge Cordell, uh, how do you feel about your uh, fellow Californian jurist responses on that one? Yeah, I I don't uh, agree with them with all due respect to my brethren. Um, Your initial question was about the FBI and has their integrity been so harmed that uh, if they were to be involved in prosecutions, would there be such bias against them that those prosecutions would be tainted? Well, FBI agents generally testify in federal courts. These would be federal trials. And um, a jury is selected, as we all know, 
by a process of voir dire. That is, both sides have an opportunity to question the individuals who will sit eventually sit on a jury. So I do not think that um, future prosecutions by, that involve the FBI are going to be so tainted because of the, the, um, the search that was done um, and, and handled by the FBI, in this case, of Mar-a-Lago. And one quick comment. Uh, I do disagree with the judges in their, uh, some of them, in their assessment of the January 6th committee. Uh, that committee, it's not a trial. It, a, a trial is an adversarial um, body where you have two sides going at it. That's not what the January 6th committee is. It is a fact-finding body that, was bi that is bipartisan. So I, I do disagree. I think that uh, we are learning so much because of the work of this committee. So I'll, I'll just leave it there, and I, I commend them for their work, and I can't wait for their next hearing. Well, we know that, of course— uh, Can I add something, Frank? I want to ask the question about the FBI. If you extend it and you include all law enforcement, and my background is in law enforcement. I started out as a deputy district attorney, and the reality is— Witnesses' credibility make a big difference, and what the people read in the papers and what they hear on social media makes a difference. And they, whether you do it in Guadalajara or not, jurors don't always tell you the truth. They just don't do that. And the reality here is it may very well taint the organization, whatever it is, whether it's the district attorney's office, federal prosecutors, or whoever. It may taint that testimony to the point where it's not necessarily credible enough to suspend an ultimate determination. That's how I feel about that. So, uh, of course, I, I'm, a, of I'm course. a strong believer. This is Judge Cordell. I'm a strong believer in our jury system. And yeah, there have been some instances, not many, where I've I've been uh, not pleased with how juries come out. But I, I, after presiding over dozens and dozens of jury trials, I'm a strong believer in them. And and I, um, so my faith in them stands strong, even with all of this. Um. This being bipartisan is also an issue because the Trump supporters say that this is the first time in the history of Congress investigating anything where the minority didn't get to select the people they wanted to be on the committee conducting the hearing and that they ended up with Cheney and Kinsler. Adam Kinzinger, right. Kinzinger, who, you know, who died in the Wolf Republic is now considered rhinos so that, you know, so you, you, that, yeah, if, if it was a traditional committee, then you would probably have people maybe more acceptance of what is going on. But it, by doing what they did, they created an issue that didn't need to be created. But, but, but they, they um, deviated from the prior way these committees were set up. All right, we're going to take a quick break. But go, go ahead, Judge Cordell, one quick moment, and then we're going to take a quick break. There, there's a fact here that no one's bringing up on this January 6th committee. The Republicans were given an opportunity to pick, and Kevin McCarthy said, no, we're just not going to participate. Uh, and they're kicking themselves for that. So it isn't about, oh, they went ahead and just had these two uh, Republicans on it. That's not how it went down at all. Republicans said, we refuse to even be on it and cooperate. They regret that they've done that. 
So we, we get what we get. But it isn't because there was a deliberate selection and Republicans were kept out. They opted out. Uh, Judge Phillips Stranary is here. We're talking with Judge Herb Dodell, Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell, and Judge Jim Gray. An all-star panel. I can't even imagine what I'm going to be charged in terms of legal fees for this hour. This is going to be something. Uh, we'll try and squeeze in some of your questions. If you have questions for our illustrious panel, you can give us a call, 1-800-848-9222. We're going to get into some other legal issues as well, one 800 848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Frank and the Judges, straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Hear ye, hear ye. The Colts in session. The Colts in session now. Here come the judge. Here come the judge. That is Pygmy Markham singing the classic Here Comes the Judge. And uh, if he was going to come out with this song for this particular show, uh, the more appropriate uh, title would be Here Come the Judge Is, because we have four retired judges, three Californians, and one New Yorker, all of whom have had distinguished careers on the bench that have uh, gotten them a great deal of acclaim and attention in a positive light over the years. And uh, we're using their collective expertise and wisdom to break down some of the big legal issues of the day. You know, Judge Stranary, I always wondered, and people have have raised uh, questions about this before, what is the protocol in terms of addressing a former judge? Are you always addressed as judge from the time you retire until the day you die? I, once you're a judge, you uh, always have the uh, referred to as honorable you always have the title of honorable. I think with all elected officials keep that uh, as a title, honorable. Although I should point out that when I used to have Yankee season tickets, uh, it came to me and it was addressed as unbearable. <laughs> uh, Judge Gray, what about it? At what point do you become Jim, if any? You know, I've always thought your eminence was an appropriate title, but I so far I haven't gotten very far with that. Hey, you happens in my household. Right. No, it's it's nice that that you get the respect. We live in a fishbowl. Every every day of my life since I was appointed, I have to be aware that I'm representing the judiciary. If I'm going to go to the hardware store on a Saturday, I make sure that I dress dress up better than I would otherwise. It's it's a it's a real wonderful privilege to be able to be a judge, and you have to bear it accordingly. You know. Be careful of your humor. Be careful of your of what you say. But uh, it's a. I'm grateful to have been able to have been a judge for 25 years. Uh, uh, judge, what about the protocol of addressing a former judge, Judge Cordell? How does that uh, How does that affect you on a daily basis? The, the judicial canons, which are the rules under which sitting judges have to abide, uh, say that you don't never use your judicial position to gain an advantage. So that means getting traffic ticket, cop stops you, well, I'm judge so-and-so. That's totally inappropriate. Um, so you're never to do that. So once I left the bench, I did get asked that question, you know, are you still judge? And I, I say to people, uh, well, professors are still professors after they've retired. Doctors are still doctors after they've retired. Why should it be different for judges? But the one difference I had in, in being a female in the judiciary, and at the time I started, uh, there were very few women on in the bench. Um, and 
when male judges retired from the bench, most people had no problem always referring to them as judge so-and-so, judge so-and-so, out of respect. And yet when women, and I remember I was questioned, same kind of thing, same situation, um, I would be asked, well, uh, do you still want to be, are you still a judge? So the women, this is again a few years back, were being asked whether or not we were still judges where men were not. Uh, so uh, my rule is that when I speak publicly at events and I'm recognized because I'm a judge, yeah, I'm judge so-and-so. But other than that, uh, we are not, I don't, take my position in, in any way of giving me an advantage. Uh, when I'm out among people I don't know, I never say that I was a judge. If someone else finds that out, that's fine. But I think we, uh, as the judge just before me who spoke, said, yes, when you're on the bench, you are a judge all the time, on and off. And to uh, carry yourself uh, with to enable to get respect from everyone and to maintain integrity in, in the institution. But afterwards, Eh, not so much. We can be who we are. The rules, the judicial canons do not apply to us. Uh, so uh, I'm not caught up with the title. Uh, I appreciate that you're calling us judge tonight because that is the subject matter. But if we were not, I had no problem with you calling me by my first name. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a lot easier to call everyone judge than try to remember who everyone actually is. Uh, judge Dodell, how about you? Do uh, uh, you make your, your, your family and friends call you judge? Well, let me answer this way. There's no rule either way with regard to the use of the title after you retire. I tell people I'm a retired judge. I make it very clear that I'm not on the bench and that this is what I was doing before. And I think I think it was Jim Gray who said, the fact is when you start out as a judge, you stay as a judge. You don't change. You're either an engineer or you're not. And the fact is nothing really changes. And in terms of the use of the title... I think it's a matter of respect. You would call a doctor doctor. You wouldn't call him Harry or Jane or Mary or anything else. You call them by their title, whatever title they had when they started. And there's no reason that they shouldn't be afforded that. Uh, I, I don't want to call it luxury. It's not a luxury. But it should be afforded that respect. No reason why they shouldn't be. Uh, let me ask all of you about uh, the other big uh, sort of politically oriented case that's uh, that's getting a lot of news and then we'll try and hit some other issues as well and uh, answer some of the folks that are uh, that are calling in to talk with you guys and that has to do with this grand jury in uh, in Georgia this uh, grand jury is investigating the 2020 election results and the attempt a uh, possible attempt to uh, subvert the electors that were selected in in Georgia and just yesterday a federal judge ordered Senator Lindsey Graham's legal team to produce a list of questions that a grand jury investigating efforts to overturn the elections can ask the senator. Rudy Giuliani testified there. He said publicly that the uh, grand jury was very cordial with him. The prosecutors were very nice. And apparently there's a lot of other bold-faced names that may be called before this uh, Georgia grand jury. Uh, Judge Gray, where do you think this Georgia investigation goes? And how do you think uh, the uh, bigger names that we've heard here have been handling the subpoena issue? Well, Again, Frank, this is kind of out of my area. I think it's, again, critically important that we have faith in our institutions and we should be transparent with regard to our investigations and, and get as much honest information out to the public as we can. But we also have to be sure not to prejudge these things. And it's, again, I use the word demagogue. It's just so easy to, to demagogue in this world that we're so 
tribal at this point in so many ways that if you disagree with me that you're evil and I'm righteous and and we need leadership to say wait a minute you know there's a difference between the word discuss and the word argue and discussion means basically that you're you're relying on facts you're inquiring you're trying to use rational thought and an argument basically is on emotion and we need to use a lot more discussion it's okay to be dis, to disagree with people it's not okay to be disagreeable uh, Judge Cordell. The Georgia grand jury is looking at um, Lindsey Graham to determine whether or not he improperly influenced um, the election. And um, he has invoked the Constitution speech and debate clause. It's Article 1, Section 6, Clause 1 of the Constitution. So people should understand really what this is about. He's basically saying that he is protected from having to testify before the grand jury because of this clause. And this clause basically gives, they call it a privilege from arrest during their attendance at any sessions of the House, and they are protected for any speech or debate in either House. So that's where it comes from. And it also protects members of Congress from civil suits related to whatever their official duties are. Lindsey Graham has claimed he was attempting to understand the method for which different states examine ballots. If you believe that, okay, then that's what he's, why he's saying he made a phone call to the Secretary of State in Georgia. So the grand jury is looking into this, and now we have—and that's the state, Georgia. But now we have the federal court weighing in, and a federal court, district court judge, that's a trial court judge— Uh, denied Lindsey Graham's bid to avoid testifying. Um, And that judge said that the Georgia prosecutors had shown extraordinary circumstances and a special need for his testimony. That's a federal judge. So then Lindsey Graham appealed, and it's now the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals that has granted Graham's request to block the subpoena that would compel him to go before the grand jury, saying that the prosecutors had to sort out whether Graham is protected from answering certain questions. So they have to go through specific questions and find out whether or not the Constitution speech and debate clause applies. So once again, I, I think lay people, folks who are not really caught up in the legal system, probably look at all this and say all that this legal system does is delay, delay, delay. And, and it really is true. It's true that uh, when people don't want things to happen, that the legal system provides a way to just kind of delay and delay. It is lawful. Uh, I'm not saying that, you know, if you're a litigator that you wouldn't use kinds of tools to either drag out, prolong, or end things. But that's really what's happening in Georgia. So Lindsey Graham is on a roll. Now he's at the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, and there's just more delay. In the end, I believe he will be compelled to testify. Uh, Judge Dodell, how do you see this Georgia situation uh, well, coming together? I see, it from a, I, I see it from a political lens. I think that Trump has his greatest potential liability in Georgia for the demographics and a variety of other local political reasons. I think ultimately the best shot anybody has against him, if they're looking to take one, and they all certainly are, is going to be in Georgia. And I think there's a fairly decent likelihood because much of the factual evidence, as opposed to legal evidence, most of the factual admissible evidence is that all the things that are alleged, the phone call, I want 12,000 more votes, et cetera, et cetera, it's, it's not with dispute. 
facts are pretty much undisputed. I think that ultimately, and I want to contact, I want to comment on Judge Cordell's comment about the January 6th committee. Just one line, and that is, I think of it as akin to a grand jury proceeding, even though it's not a criminal proceeding. And so, the grand jury, it's the same thing. One side, prosecutor only, and that's not fair to the other side until there's an actual litigation. But with response, with respect to other situations. I think you're absolutely right. I have seen the stall, dodge, and delay for years and years. In fact, I once gave a speech to the state bar, and it was called The Only Float in Town Isn't at the Rose Parade, because that's what a lot of companies do. They float it as long as they can. Hopefully, people will either die, go away, can't afford it, or whatever will come along in their lives. But the reality here is, and I use the word reality, is that I think that the Georgia grand jury and the prosecutor there is going to get an indictment. Judge, Judge Trenary, it was another New York judge who said that a, a grand jury could indict a ham sandwich. Uh, how do you see the uh, Georgia grand jury playing out here? Do you think indictments are likely? I, they have to figure out. Uh, I don't think we know enough of what actually was done. I mean, is calling up someone and saying you can't find 12,000 votes or whatever he said? Is that sufficient inf- uh, interference in the process to warrant being indicted as opposed to I'm like really uh, angry about what happened and I'm, I'm spouting off and maybe, you know, maybe it's inappropriate. I don't know. You know, did, was any, were any steps taken to carry out finding 12,000 votes, you know, by going finding ballots and starting marking? I, I don't know. But it, it's, it, it, I think it's more political than legal. All right, we're going to continue in a moment. Judge Stranieri is here. Judge Jim Gray is here. Uh, Judge Ladoris Hazard Cordell is here. Judge Herb Dodell is here. We have an all-star panel, and I keep saying I'm going to take your calls. When we come back, we really will. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, judge Phillips Trenary, um, New York retired judge, joining me in studio. Judge Herb Dodell, Judge Ladoris Cordell, and Judge Jim Gray, all of the state of California, retired judges there, joining me remotely. Uh, some of you have been elected. Some of you have been appointed. I'm curious if uh, any of the four of you have a strong feeling about what judicial selection process produces the best judges. Do you think it's better in general for judges to be elected or to be appointed? Uh, Judge, I voted for you before, so uh, we'll begin with you. To paraphrase Winston Churchill, uh, the election of judges is the worst way of picking them except for everything else. (laughs) Judge Cordell, what do you think? Um, I have recently published a book called Her Honor, and in it I have a chapter called Judges for Sale. I got on the bench both ways, first by appointment by the governor 
and then what I wanted to move up by election. And my view is that judicial elections um, should be abolished entirely. There should be judicial selection done by merit selection commissions that are bipartisan and transparent. And the reason I'm opposed to judicial elections are two. One is that it costs us a lot of money, and the money is generally raised from lawyers, who some of whom end up appearing in the very courts of the judges for whom they donated money. The second is that studies have shown, and I write about this in the book, that during elections, that the elections affect, adversely impact and affect judges' decision-making, that judges tend to, to, in criminal cases, tend to sentence more harshly to make decisions that make them look really tough um, in order to ensure their election. So I'm opposed entirely, and I speak from someone who has gone through an election and won. So I do know of what I speak, and I, I'm really advocating for getting rid of them entirely. Judge Gray, what do you think, election or appointment or both? Um, it's a tough question. I, I agree. I think that probably retention elections are okay, such that you vote as we do on appellate courts here in Orange County, in uh, California, you vote to retain or not to retain such and such a justice. And I think that's probably the best way. Otherwise, I agree with the other comments. Uh, we don't want to get politics into judging, and I fear that it can and sometimes does. Uh, Judge Dodell, what do you think? I don't think either one of them works. First of all, as far as elections are concerned, it's right. Judge Cordell is absolutely right. Putting up the money to run. One of my colleagues cost them fifty thousand dollars to mm. run against some no-name person. The problem with election is, and I get more calls every year just before the election. They say to me, "I see all these judges are running. I don't know any of them. Who should I vote for?" And you know what? I don't know any of them either. And the bottom line is, people vote by demographics. Actually, yes. yeah. you recognize the name in New York. The other way is the other way is even worse. There used to be a guy here, in fact, several guys here, who had great influence with the governors. And if you wanted to be a judge, you called or you made a donation, and he made the phone call, and you became a judge. We have a committee and a commission that does some slight investigation, but I don't think it's enough. I think Judge Cordell is absolutely right. I think we should have a non-binding, or maybe binding, neutral commission, bipartisan to determine the qualifications of these judges. And if you know anything about the federal system, you know how these judges, some of these appellate judges get appointed, they get interviewed by the Federalist Society. It's a group of lawyers that have a very conservative approach. And the liberal groups the same way. I don't think either one of them works, personally. The problem with the appointment system in a lot of states is that the politics is then in the back room. Mm-hmm. In the elected system, the politics is out in the front. The public's involved. Um, it, it is, you know, it's not. It, it's never non-political. All right, let me try and run through as many of these questions as uh, as we can here. Uh, for those of you guys that are on the line, just so we can get through as many questions as possible, just try to keep your questions brief. Let me begin with Ray in New Jersey. Hello, Ray. Ray Cordell. Yes. Go ahead. You hear me? Yes. Go ahead, Ray. Okay. I'd like to ask Judge Cordell if the January 6th committee is so on the up and up, why did she leave out the fact that uh, I believe Kevin McCarthy wanted Jim Jordan and another guy on the panel, but Pelosi said no? Judge Cordell? Well, sure. There's a good reason why Pelosi said no, because they were there 
you've seen their behavior. If you watch their behavior, the two people you mentioned, they're obstructionists. They want to make sure that nothing gets done. And I would have absolutely done the same thing. Uh, Felix is in Queens. Felix, what's your question? Yeah, my name is Felix J. Torres. I'm calling you from New York, Richard Queens. Let me tell you something. The legal system and the law does not work. And the constitutions of the United States of America, that's a mess. That doesn't exist. Let me tell you something. Felix, uh, before we get on the whole, Felix, hang on, hang on. Um, You know, before we get on the whole rant, I I can't tell you all, all, all judges how often I hear from people expressing exactly that sentiment. They've been wronged in some way. They perceive they've been wronged either in a civil proceeding, a divorce a divorce case, family law, maybe even a criminal case. And it, it does cause them to lose faith in the legal system. What do you say to somebody like a Felix or the thousands of others who might say the same so thing? The biggest problem with the legal system is that people don't have legal representation. Too many people are unrepresented or they don't have the ability to hire a competent lawyer, and therefore the system's not, not going to work for them. Uh, Judge Gray? That's absolutely true. Yeah. Well, I disagree in a large sense. We have public defenders, and not the ones that I've encountered, and that's quite a few of them, are dedicated, hardworking. Yes, they're overworked, but I think that they give pretty good representation. But again, life is complicated. I'll go back to our Constitution, though, and say it's the greatest document ever written by the hand of man, and we need to abide by our Constitution. It's what's brought us good things so far, and we're getting away from it too much. Uh, Judge Cordell. Sure. Um, I I call our criminal legal system a legal system, not a criminal justice system, uh, because of the disproportionate number of uh, people of color and poor people who are incarcerated. It's called mass incarceration. And I believe that I'm always hopeful that we need to do a lot more to make the system to get it to where point of justice. And the last thing is that this Constitution and all of these wonderful principles um, that say that you have a right to a jury trial and a right to due process, all of those are wonderful, fantastic principles that were developed by property white men who did not intend for those principles to apply to women, to poor people, and certainly not to people of color. So our challenge today for judges and for everyone is to make those principles apply equally and fairly to everyone. Judge Dodell, what do you think? Well, first of all, I can tell a fast story. I was in court wielding over what they call unlawful detainer cases. And it was a famous NBA basketball star who was being foreclosed from the $7 million house. And he was unrepresented. And I said to him, do you have a lawyer? And this is a major guy. He had all the rings, the whole deal. He said, I don't have a lawyer. And I read the papers, obviously, beforehand, and I saw that he had a potential defense. He really did. If he had known about it, he might have done something. So what I did is I continued it for two weeks. I said, I think you should get yourself a lawyer. I can't give legal advice, of course. And he came back in two weeks, no lawyer. And, of course, he was evicted, ultimately. And the bottom line was if he had a lawyer, a competent lawyer, things might have been very different. And I saw so many times, that's why I wrote my book, as a matter of fact, Hmm. is because so many people are unrepresented. Whoever it was that said the problem is unrepresentation or lack of representation or whatever is absolutely right. The public has no clue as to what goes on in the legal system, only what they see on television. Eddie in Nassau County, quick question. Go ahead. Yes, good morning. Uh, Your Honors, uh, what do you think about 
the term or in the practical application of the law, the term innuendo, and how does that apply to different cases? I'll take the answer off the air. Thank you. Any Anybody want to address that the question of innuendo? I'm not even sure exactly uh, what the question is, to be honest. Anybody want? No. Okay. Yeah. Well, everybody. I think. Let's... I'm not sure what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, right. Uh, right. Let, let me let me add something quickly. That back in 1992, as a sitting trial court judge, I held a press conference, which judges do not do, stating my firm conclusion that the war on drugs, drug prohibition, was not working, and this was cause of enormous problems in our society wrongly, putting many too many people in prison. This was a political issue that's still going on. Judges can't do too much about it, but these are things that judges can stand up and should stand up and and spread the alarm. Uh, That's Judge Jim Gray. You could check out his website at uh, judgejimgray.com. We've been talking with uh, Judge Cordell as well. You could go to judgecordell.com. Judge Frenary, you're still without a website, right? Yes. And uh, you could hear Judge uh, Herb Dodell on uh, on the radio frequently. I was fortunate enough to be a guest on the show last night. Judges, thank you all for coming on. I hope we can do this again soon. Thank pleasure. You. Our pleasure. Uh, in the words of uh, the great Barry Farber, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. A lot of other stuff to get to, including uh, we're going to talk with uh, Jim Fetzer coming up in about a, a half hour. He is one of the more controversial people we have ever had on this show. He is someone that does not run away from the label of conspiracy theorist. If there's a conspiracy theory out there, Jim Fetzer, who is a a Ph.D., who's a professor emeritus at a very reputable college, he has embraced it and he has written about it. We're going to talk about how that leaves him and his standing in academia. We'll also get into some of the specifics of things that he has actually written about, the Kennedy assassination, for instance, and some things that you have never even heard of in the conspiracy realm. We'll get into it. I asked Judge Trenary to stick around for a few minutes because uh, Judge Trenary is an old friend of mine and somebody that I've been a great admirer uh, of for a long time, voted for many times, campaigned for many times, and he's doing a lot of other interesting things uh, irrespective of uh, his role on on the uh, on the bench, uh, Judge Trenary, you're also a, uh, a professor. You've done a lot of teaching over the years at St. John's University, a couple of decades now, yeah. right? Since the early 1980s. Wow. Now, it just so happens that the idea of student tuition and uh, paying for paying for tuition and the loans that a lot of these young people have to carry for years is is first and foremost on the uh, agenda for a lot of younger voters. President Biden is now talking about some sort of loan forgiveness program for folks making under $125,000. I think what they're talking about is $10,000 in debt relief. How do you see kind of the issue of tuition, student loans, and debt forgiveness? Well, I I, I think there's a fairness issue here. Um, I uh, who who did got these loans? Uh, you know, if you want to put play the racial card, you're going to say most of these people are, who with the college loans are, are, are white and not minorities. So we're forgiving the, their loans. Well, what about the, the student who decided he's not going to go to college? 
that he's going to go out and he's going to buy a falafel truck and, you know, put $200,000 into a falafel truck. He didn't go to college, but he has the debt of the truck or became a, a cabbie. Right. Why aren't we subsidizing you know, his said, debt? Right. Or the, the, the kid, the guy is going to become an auto mechanic and has to go buy all, all his own tools. I mean, so it, I, it bothers me on a fairness level, uh, uh, primarily. And I don't understand why we don't go reinstate the bankruptcy law. Um, until, I forget, maybe it's 1978 or after that. You used to be able to just discharge your student debt in bankruptcy. You can't do that anymore. So it would seem to me that if if uh if you can't don't have a job and you can't pay your student loan you can't pay your other loans any other debt you have you could file for bankruptcy and discharge it but we stopped doing that Therefore, so the people who needed the relief could get it if we put that back in now i don't know what the politics of that is is it that if if it's discharged in bankruptcy the banks are actually going to eat mm-hmm. the money if if we do it this way um the the public's picking up the tab. There's no, there's no. This isn't free. Someone's paying. Right, nothing's free. free. And yeah. we know. And I think statistically, because there's so much borrowing for college, the, the colleges raise the tuition because they know you can go borrow the money. Uh, and another some similar example. Apparently, you know, they passed the uh, the um, inflation reduction act, which is going to subsidize uh, electric vehicles up to mm-hmm. seventy five. Hundred dollars, uh, I think Ford and GM raised the price of the cars eight thousand dollars. What good is it doing? It's so added it's, to it. It's added, so it's right. ridiculous. So um, there seems to be a better way to do this. You know, if you really need the relief, we maybe it, 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 we should go back to letting people declare bankruptcy. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. That's eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Unfortunately, uh, your wife uh, Jennifer passed away recently. Right. I'm sorry about that. Hope you and your family are doing okay. Uh, but what you've done is actually uh, channel her passing into something really positive and really productive. Tell us what you so, do. Uh, my, my wife worked in the performing arts department at the College of Staten Island for about eight, 18 years. So we decided, my uh, children and I decided that we would start a scholarship fund in her name. But, uh, primarily it will be to uh, for a Staten Island student who wants to major in performing arts. So we're about halfway to our goal. That's and great. It's a you know the college has been great, and uh, all our friends and acquaintances have been uh, very generous. So uh, I thought that was an we thought that was an appropriate um, way to remember my wife. Um, you know, and I, I hit I it, I'm a retired judge because when I hit age seventy in New York, uh, I became constitutionally senile, <laughs> meaning that uh, you, you couldn't serve as a judge anymore um but i I was very upset about that because i was not ready to retire but in retrospect you never know how things are going to work out i was able to be home for Mm. a year and a half to take care of my wife which i would have been the crazy guy who like you who goes to work every day right right exactly the most thing is is work i want i love being a judge it was the best job in the world i love dealing with people and trying to figure out solve problem solve for them I was reading about someone today, and it seems to me I, – I don't want to get into the specifics of this yeah. particular situation, but I was reading about someone today. Well, by the way, if people want to contribute to that scholarship, is there is there a means that they can do that? I think there's a, a, a GiveGab site, and then, or else they can write checks to 
the CSI Foundation with Jennifer Stranary Scholarship. Fund. All right, or I appreciate folks, you doing or, that. Yeah, or, or folks, email me. I'll connect you with uh, with the judge, and he can provide you a more specific way to do that. You can email me, Frank Morano at uh, wabcradio.com. But anyway, I, I read an article today about someone who is a Holocaust denier and a pretty avowed Holocaust denier. And it's amazing to me that uh, these people are out there and still say this kind of thing. And what's what's scary to me is that pretty soon, relatively shortly, there's going to be no one alive on the whole planet that was an eyewitness to the atrocities of the Holocaust. Uh, you've been very active, and I, I know you're of you're Jewish, and uh, and my son is uh, you know is is technically Jewish. Um, you've been very active in the Staten Island Holocaust Center. What's happening there? So we, we formed the Staten Island Holocaust Center. This is not the Wagner College Holocaust Center. Wagner College has their own program. They're doing a great job they, uh, with Holocaust education. But um, myself and my co-chair, Rachel Borenstein, believe that we should have more of a museum setting, um, that you can learn more from a museum than sometimes you can from someone just speaking or looking at a picture. Um, you know, I, I gave the example that if you go to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., you remember the pile of shoes. You know, that's that someone could tell you about right. that, but you you see that and it makes an impression. Or when they had the Auschwitz exhibit in down at the Battery at the Jewish Heritage Museum, uh, the Jewish Holocaust Museum, yeah, they they had a, a, a boxcar. Now, we Americans, we think a boxcar is one of these things that we see out west, right? right? You see the box size of the boxcar, and you say they had 150 people in mm. a boxcar the size is. You know, it, it makes an impression. So we, we formed the Staten Island Holocaust Center. We've located space at Fort Wadsworth, the old officers' club. We have an architect who's re- completed a site survey and some renderings. Um, and we have a letter of intent with the federal government, and uh, we're waiting to get a lease completed. The, the, the center's going to have four components, not only the Holocaust survivors and their stories, but also... Um, World War II veterans, especially from Staten Island, especially veterans who freed the camps, the history of the Jewish community on Staten Island, uh, to preserve that because it's a, a changing and it's you know 100 years now, and the uh, what we call righteous Gentiles stories about uh, non-Jews who that's great risked everything. So what do you think the timetable is for that being well, up and running? That we have to go raise the money uh-huh. uh, and. Uh, which uh, you know, it's it's good. We, it's probably at least a three million dollar project. Wow. Wow. So, um, well, good luck. You got to keep us posted. I will. That. I appreciate you letting me talk yeah, about absolutely. it. Absolutely, it's a great, uh, great project, and and it's it's going to be. We're going to have education programs to help fight anti semitism and uh, other issues that. People should learn about and not forget. 800-848-9222. Here is uh, another admirer of yours, Neil on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Yeah, Judge Stranary is just a great guy. Even though he ruled against me in the small claims court case <laughs> years ago, he's still a great guy. Thank you. You know, I, I, I want to ask two things. Number one, the woman judge that you had, when she was asked about not putting, uh, not letting uh, McCarthy pick the two people, uh, for the January 6th committee. She says they're obstructionists. I wouldn't pick him either. Uh, there's no way to 
to qualify these people, the congressmen. Should they have, he have the right to put them on without uh, whether obstructionists or not? I mean, this is his right. You don't qualify people for a committee like that. Am I wrong? Anything I, you want to add there, Judge, no, from a legal I, you know, perspective? Well, I, I, I think it, I think the the public perception and the public acceptance would have been a lot better if we endured whatever the uh, the anti-Trump people were afraid of would happen by having people who were, were you know more favorable to his position. Let's put it that way. I think it's a it, it, this is America, you know. But the, the problem is, I guess that these, uh, you know, the January Sixth Commission, it's not really a legal proceeding; right. it's a political proceeding. Right. That's what it is, you know. And it, there right. is politicians picking other politicians right. to score political right. points, right? right? So, there's uh, two things I, I, I your listeners should do. They should read Eisenhower's uh, farewell address from mm. January 1961, which everybody remembers for the military-industrial complex. Uh, but it, it also has other things about what's going on now with media and the and big business getting together and things like that. And everybody should reread 1984. Mm, yeah, that's for sure. Thank you, Neil. Uh, Judge Trenary, it is always a treat to see you. Thanks for being a sport and uh, and coming in and coming in studio. I know it's late, and uh, I'm, uh, I'm I'm happy for your sake as a Yankee fan that the Yankees were were able to win yesterday. We figured we'd throw you a bone. You can't. You got to be tired of losing to the Mets uh, I, at I, some point. You know, I enjoy listening to you. You're you're a good guy, and known you a long time, and. Very interesting, and uh, you know, keep up the good work. Thank you. Uh, best of luck with the Staten Island Holocaust Museum and and everything else. Uh, all right, coming up in just a minute. This is an interview that I've really been looking forward to. Uh, James Fetzer, professor emeritus of the philosophy of science at the University of Minnesota Duluth, author of a whole bunch of books. Someone that's written extensively about a variety of conspiracy theories and the issue of artificial intelligence. Where are we going with all that? We'll find out. This is the other side of uh, Minute. Well, let me squeeze in one more call here. Linda is on Long Island. Hello, Linda. Hi. Hi, Frank. I'm sorry about my voice. I have a little cold. Oh, I hope um, you feel better. Oh, thank you. But I really had a call now. I was trying to call before, but you were busy. Um, I-, I couldn't believe it that. That judge, um, and I see somebody else called it out just now. I, I thought that was terrible that nobody answered that. Um, Jim Jordan is a ver- is an honest person. He's a decent person, and I'm not a Republican, but I've been following the you know this ridiculous thing, January sixth, one sided thing, and, and the whole thing was so. Is I don't even want to comment. Everybody thinks the same thing that it's phony. Okay, but why? How did she get away with just saying that? Nobody answering her. I'm saying against Jim Jordan. It's their side. She said the Republicans dropped out. They didn't want to participate. They put in two Republicans, Kiss Kissinger, Kissinger, whatever his name is. And that other one who hates right, right, Liz Cheney. Right. Thank you, Linda. You know, I mean, this is kind of exactly why I didn't want to go down the whole January 6th road, because it becomes very people get so worked up about it. Deservedly so. I, I don't think what they what the January 6th committee is doing is right. Uh, I don't think I think if you're going to explore what happened on January 6th, the proper way to do that is in courtrooms. Bring charge people that committed crimes and uh, prosecute them and throw them in prison. I don't understand. 
understand why this is the one set of political crimes that requires congressional hearings. Uh, so I, I didn't want to get get into that I know, and get into the weeds. And I know everybody has strong opinions about it, but everybody got to say their piece. The callers, the judges, everybody. So thank you for, for giving your two cents there, Linda. I hope you feel better. All right. Jim Fetzer joins me next. We'll talk about every conspiracy theory you can imagine, or at least as many as we could fit into within the next few minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. The Other Side of Midnight presents... This is Frank's Conspiracy Hour. The Chronicle of Higher Education once described our next guest as the Professor of Denial. And the subheadline in that article said how a prolific academic became an advocate for some of the strangest and most odious ideas of our time. Well, there's no doubt about the fact that James Fetzer is a pretty accomplished academic. He is a a PhD. He is somebody that is published. He is somebody that has studied at uh, Ivy League universities and has taught at a at a very prestigious academic institution. He is a professor emeritus of the philosophy of science at the University of Minnesota Duluth and an author of several books and uh, someone that has been described repeatedly and I would say deservedly so, as a conspiracy theorist, unlike a lot of other people that get that title, though, I don't know that Dr. Fetzer does much to run away from that title. We'll find out for sure in just a second. Dr. Fetzer, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Oh, Frank, it's uh, my great pleasure. And yes, what I specialize in doing is bringing together groups of experts to sort these things out and take conspiracy theories from theories in the weak sense of conjectures, guesses, or rumors, to theories in the strong sense of empirically testable explanatory hypotheses like Newton's theory of gravitation, Einstein's theory of relativity, Darwin's theory of evolution, so we can sort things out, test them, and determine whether they're true or false. So you don't run away from that label conspiracy theorist at all, right? No, that's absolutely correct. Indeed, I think anyone who actually looks into these matters, whether it's JFK, 9-11, Wellstone, Sandy Hook, is going to be a conspiracy theorist or, as some would say, a conspiracy realist or a conspiracy analyst. In fact, it turns out, Frank, conspiracies are as American as apple pie. The most prosecuted crime in America is conspiracy for this or for that, where most American are economic. But where I published an early article entitled Thinking About Conspiracy Theories, JFK and 9-11, using JFK as an introduction to the study of 9-11, but where I went through a then-current issue of the New York Times and on every single page you could not understand what they were reporting unless you appreciated that it entailed a conspiracy. Now, the University of Minnesota Duluth 
Um, they have made clear when asked about you previously that uh, that you're retired and that they have no problem with you saying whatever you want as long as it's clear that you're speaking for yourself, not necessarily for uh, the university. Have you gotten any blowback over the years, especially the last couple of decades, because you've spoken out on such controversial manners and expressed an opinion that's so contrary uh, that's so contrary to the status quo? Have you gotten any blowback from anybody involved in the University of Minnesota Duluth? Well, what you want to appreciate, Frank, is that all faculty are essentially independent contractors. No faculty member speaks. For the university, that's up to administrators. Only administrators speak for the university. So it's simply a common misunderstanding to think there's even an issue there. But not only was the University of Minnesota not negative about my research on JFK, which began in 1992, for example, but actually funded two conferences I held, one in Minneapolis in 1999 on the death of JFK, where I brought together 20 prominent experts on JFK and used it the basis of my second book on the assassination entitled Murder in Dealey Plaza, and then subsequently in 2003 funded a much smaller conference where I brought together the six leading experts on the home movies, in particular the Zapruder film, which led to the publication of my third book, The Great Zapruder Film Hoax. Uh, So the university actually has been very supportive. There was an associate dean in the graduate school on the Twin Cities campus who really liked my stuff, and I think that was beneficial. But then JFK is much less controversial than, say, 9-11. Right. That's for sure. Well, let me begin with the JFK situation, and then uh, we can either delve into 9-11 in this conversation or maybe have a, a conversation a little closer to the anniversary in a few weeks. What do you believe um, happened with respect to the Kennedy assassination? And why did you uh, become active in it almost three decades after it occurred? Um, Were you a latecomer to the JFK assassination conspiracy movement? Well, I was anchored out aboard the LPH uh, Iwo Jima, which is a helicopter carrier, as a Marine Corps officer. When the officer of the deck awakened me at 3.30 the morning to tell me JFK had been shot, and then an hour later awakened me again to tell me they caught the guy who done it. He was a communist. I thought then that was pretty fast work. Today I know why. When I returned to the United States, I began doing some casual research But it was not until 1992 when my wife came in and said, you're not going to believe this, flipped on the TV, and I saw a very distinguished-looking guy standing behind a lectern with the logo of the American Medical Association and denouncing everyone who'd done serious work on the assassination uh, and uh, promoting an interview he was doing with the two pathologists who were primarily responsible for the Bethesda autopsy and claiming this was new and scientific and so forth. Well, interviews with physicians aren't science, and it wasn't new about it, but what he was doing was abusing the journal of the AMA, of which he turned out to be the editor-in-chief, where I already knew enough about publishing and editorializing. I'd been 10 years uh, associate editor of Synthes, an international journal for epistemology, methodology, and the philosophy of science. And I knew this was all wrong, and it occurred to me 
that if someone of his level of distinction were to abuse his journal for political purposes, perhaps some of us with special backgrounds and abilities ought to become involved. And I followed uh, the discussion in the journal and noticed a letter from a member who would subsequently resign in protest, David W. Mantic, MD, PhD, which resonated with my views. I reached out to David and suggested we collaborate on a long article or a book with which he agreed. Others would join, but David has turned out to be the leading expert on the medical evidence in the assassination at JFK, and we've had a long and very fruitful collaboration for 30 years now. Hey, if people are just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Dr. James Fetzer. So what do you believe happened with respect to the Kennedy assassination? Well, Frank, everything we've been told about JFK, like virtually everything we've been told about 9-11, is just uh, false and misleading and deceptive or whitewash in both cases. Uh, for example, Lee Oswald was actually standing in the doorway of the book depository when the Kennedy motorcade passed by. That means he not only cannot have been the lone demented gunman, but cannot have been one of the shooters where we've actually identified six, believe it or not, there were assassins at six different locations in Dealey Plaza. Now, the best way to get a grip on it is to distinguish between the sponsors, the facilitators, and the mechanics. The mechanics being the shooters and their supervisors on the ground, who included, remarkably enough, George Herbert Walker Bush and Edward Lansdale. Now, the sponsors included this. These were the individuals and groups who wanted Jack out primarily because they preferred the policies of Lyndon Johnson. Though in the case of the anti-Castro Cubans, it was for revenge because they falsely believed he had betrayed them at the Bay of Pigs. But the sponsors, and it's fascinating, Frank, because each of the sponsors appeared to have put up their own shooter. The sponsors included the CIA. Jack was threatening to shatter it into a thousand pieces. The Joint Chiefs, they were upset because Jack had uh, not invaded Cuba, contrary to the unanimous recommendation. He'd gone ahead and signed an above-ground test ban treaty with the Soviet Union, contrary to the unanimous opposition. And now he's pulling our forces out of Vietnam, where they believed the stand had to be taken against the expansion of international godless communism. The, the mafia was upset because uh, Bobby was cracking down on organized crime for the first time in history, bringing more indictments and convictions. Uh, just as uh, J. Edgar Hoover, for example, who had been unable to identify organized crime, even acknowledge his existence, because just as he had sex dossiers on members of Congress, the mafia had a sex dossier on Edgar, including uh, photographs of him in compromising circumstances with his close personal aide, Clyde Tolson. Uh, the anti-Castro Cubans, as I mentioned, believed he'd betrayed them at the Bay of Pigs. Uh, in addition, we had the eastern establishment surrounding the Fed. Jack had instructed the Department of the Treasury to print United States notes. I remember as a young Marine Corps officer holding one in my hand, it had a red embossed imprint. It said United States note instead of green Federal Reserve note on the ground that it was absurd for the government of the United States to pay interest to a consortium of private banks to print the currency of the United States, which could be done just as well by the Department of the Treasury. 
The Texas oilmen were upset by Jack because he was going to cut the oil depletion allowance, which was a fantastic tax write-off based on the claim that since oil was a finite resource, they were putting themselves out of business by pumping oil out of the ground. Mm. And finally, Israel, Jack had been at loggerhead with David Ben-Gurion, who was a founder and the first prime minister of Israel and wanted to develop nuclear weapons, which Jack opposed on the ground. It would initiate a nuclear arms race in the Middle East. Those were the sponsors, but the facilitators who made it all happen were of the assassination Lyndon Johnson and of the cover-up J. Edgar Hoover. They, to understand the assassination, you have to go back to Los Angeles in 1960, where JFK beat LBJ for the nomination, and he invited Stuart Symington of Missouri to be his running mate. He gave him overnight to think about it. Bobby went by the Johnson suite to extend a pro forma as a gesture invitation to run with Jack and was dumbfounded when Lyndon leaped on it. He threatened to expose that JFK had Addison's disease and wasn't expected to live a long, healthy life, that among his dalliances was one with a beautiful woman who turned out to be an East German spy, information he'd obtained from Edgar, and moreover, that if he were not on the ticket, then any legislative proposal sent down by the White House would be dead on arrival because in his position as a powerful majority leader of the Senate, he'd lock them up. Well, Jack and Bobby were dismayed, but Lyndon had him boxed in, and they had to accede to his demand. When one of Lyndon's wealthy backers learned of this, he was outraged. He burst into the Johnson suite cursing and swearing because now LBJ was going to help JFK become president. Bobby Baker took him into a bedroom and explained what they had in mind. He came out all smiles and said he thought that was an excellent plan. Bobby Baker would subsequently declare in public that JFK would not live out his first term and that he would die a violent death. In the course of events, Lyndon Johnson would send his chief administrative aide, Cliff Carter, down to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements mm. were in place for the assassination. Uh, the one aspect, look, I've heard uh, a lot of different theories related to the Kennedy assassination uh, in terms of motive, in terms of participants. The one aspect to your analysis of the Kennedy assassination, which is unique, which I hadn't heard from anybody else, is your contention that the Zapruder film is not genuine. Most people look at the Zapruder film as a piece of evidence to be analyzed and to take clues from. Why do you think that the Zapruder film was faked? Well, there are a couple of aspects to it. Uh, number one is, and this is a question that puzzles many, why if they were going to kill Jack, would they do it in public in, in a major city in the middle of the day? And the answer is because if they took him out at the White House, for example, or in the dead of night, no one would believe it wasn't a conspiracy. They had observers stationed all over Dealey Plaza, and they knew exactly who was where, what they were doing. They would approach those who were taking photographs, take the photographs away from them. They had an FBI agent stationed at the photo plants in uh, Dallas for two weeks after the assassination. They took any photos or films related thereto and left a little card saying why they'd taken them. Uh, they stole the body. I mean, this was absolutely indispensable by Texas law. It was a requirement there be an inquest held in Texas. 
They had a wonderful medical examiner by the name of Earl Rose who did an autopsy on uh, J.D. Tippett, which was just a masterpiece. And if he'd allowed to do it on JFK, it would have been exposed that he'd been shot multiple times in the throat from in front, in the right temple from in front, in the back five and a half inches below the collar, just to the right of the spinal column, uh, and also in the back of the head, uh, where the first two of those shots were widely reported on radio and television that day, Frank. If you go back to, say, NBC, see it now, you'll see David Brinkley, among others, reporting the shot to the throat, that Malcolm Perry, M.D., who performed a simple tracheostomy incision through the small, clean puncture wound, described it three times as a wound of entry. The bullet was coming at him. And that later, when Malcolm killed him, the acting press secretary announced that the president was dead. He explained it was a simple matter of a bullet right through the head pointing to his right temple, which would be widely reported later, attributed to Admiral George Berkeley, the president's personal position. So those who were listening to radio and television that day were getting the report of two shots the president suffered, both of which had been fired from in front. So that later in the evening, when the story started to trickle in, that the FBI and the Secret Service were claiming only three shots had been fired from above and behind, Frank McGee, who was nobody's fool, said, this is incongruous. How can the man have been shot from in front, from behind? This was a problem the Warren Commission confronted. But the fact is that... Uh, if it hadn't been done in public, where they could control all the evidence, where they could steal the body and then subject it to manipulation, uh, they actually offloaded the body in a body bag at Andrews Air Force Base into a helicopter and flew it to Walter Reed, where the best physicians in the military removed metal fragments from the multiple shots because the different shooters were using their own preferred weapons. And then it was transported in a peakish gray shipping casket to the back of the Bethesda morgue. Well, it was already undergoing autopsy when Jackie Kennedy showed up in the Gray Navy ambulance with a bronze ceremonial casket. All eyes had been fixated on when they offloaded at Andrews Air Force Base, not realizing that the actual body was being offloaded on the opposite side and flown to Walter Reed. So it was really a very elaborate plan. And it, when when you sort out the amount of fabricated evidence, and this is where David Mantic became especially important. He told me, and this was already in uh, November, December of 1992, that he had permission from Burke Marshall, who was a Kennedy family attorney, then a professor emeritus at Yale School of Law, to utter the archives and study the autopsy materials that he believed he would be able to establish that there was evidence of a second shot to the head and that the autopsy x-rays had been altered and indeed he was able to accomplish both he established an area which he identified as an area p for patch that was very significant at the back of the head of the skull and the lateral cranial x-ray that's a skull x-ray taken from the right side where it occurred to me that in relation to the Zapruder film, since it was evident that they had done so much editing in early frames from 313, where you see what's supposed to be the headshot forward, they have actually blacked it out, where a group of Hollywood film restoration experts have been kind of dumbfounded, where they got a forensic copy from the 
National Archives, which is just astoundingly clear and detailed, and they blew it up, and they couldn't see how amateurishly they had blacked out the blowout at the back of the head, which we had, you know, six or eight physicians. We had uh, witnesses in Dealey Plaza. We had even had some of the medical techs at Bethesda identify a fist-sized blowout at the back of the head. Well, they covered it up by using a material that was either too dense to be human bone or else by overexposing the area. So David identified, and it occurred to me, looking at the film, that perhaps while they covered it up early by painting in black, they blow up the frame, paint it out in black, then shrink back the frame and reshoot the sequence of the frames. Perhaps they'd overlook that it would be visible elsewhere, and I found in frame 374, 375, you could actually see it. This is where Jackie's starting to climb out. Now, that's an obvious indication, then, that they'd altered because they blacked out the blood at the back of the head. John P. Costello, another Ph.D. who joined my research group, who had a background in electromagnetism and expert on the properties of light and images of moving objects, did a completely brilliant tutorial, which you can access on my assassinationscience.com or assassinationresearch.com websites, where he determined that the film was like 98% technically flawless, but that they'd committed certain blunders that proved without any doubt it had been massively edited, including they took out the Stamets freeway sign, apparently because it had a bullet hole in it that was inconsistent with the three-shot scenario. And when they replaced it, they didn't take into account uh, types of distortion in films, and they put it in improperly. So John created a you know a gif where you can see the Zapruder the 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 stem of the freeway sign where it ought to have been and how it's offset in the yeah. uh, in 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 the in the actual video, which is relatively trivial except it's conclusive proof of alteration. And Frank, more significantly, they merged two shots. The, the driver, Greer, was uh, the only one who could have saved JFK's life once they entered the kill zone in Dealey Plaza, actually pulled the limousine to the left and to a halt. He was given a fist signal from the, someone known as a Cuban on the street to stop, and he actually jostled. He hit the brake so hard that everyone in the car was thrown forward. Jack had already been hit twice in the back, as I've described, and in the throat, a bullet that passed through the windshield. But after it stopped, then he was hit in the back of the head by a shot fired from the Dow Tax. He, he was wearing a corset. Jack had this spinal injury from World War II, PT-109, saving a fellow sailor. So he, he wore this corset-like structure as a back brace. That meant it really limited his mobility in the vehicle. And it, when he was hit in the back of the head, he slumped forward. Jackie eased him back. I was looking him right in the face when he was hit in the right temple by a, by a, the bullet that blew his brains out the back of the head and caused the, the fist-sized blowout, uh, and then slumped to the left. What they did when they edited the film, and they took it to Hawkeye Works, a secret CIA laboratory adjacent to Kodak headquarters in Rochester, they merged the two shots together so that all you have left of the first slumping forward, and we have many witnesses who observe this, but it's not in the film. Uh, there's only one frame forward from 312 to 313, and then you have this violent back and to the left. Well, David Lifton may have been the first to identify that something was wrong here. He actually took a large uh, scale blows up of these frames up to 
to Caltech. Uh, I was born in Pasadena. I mean, Caltech is among the most prestigious scientific uh, institutions in the world. And confronted with Richard Feynman, the very famous physicist, and Feynman just took a ruler and applied it using a fixed feature of the limousine. And he determined that the you had forward motion of the head from 312 to 313, and then this violet back into the left. But no one in Dealey Plaza witnessed that violet back into the left, Frank, which occurred because they edited out too many frames. In other words, mm. it was a rush job. Uh, he was killed on Friday. The original was taken, it was developed in uh, Dallas. Uh, they put allegedly three copies. I believe there was actually a fourth. There's a missing number, the very first copy, which I believe was sold to H.L. Hunt for $100,000. And then they took the original to the National Photographic Interpretation Center in Washington, D.C., where they have all the technology to blow up satellite photographs from a little tiny micro docs to big, you know, so they can study them. Well, that's just what you need if you had a little. It was a eight millimeter, already split film. The camera uses a 16 millimeter film, and it films down one side called the A side, and then you have to take it out, flip it over, and do the B side. Well, each side has about 500 frames altogether if you were to shoot it completely. Uh, they took it back to uh, the National Photographic Interpretation Center, and we had one team of experts who were preparing briefing boards for the shots, and those would have been pretty accurate. Mm. But then Sunday, the following day, an agent who called himself William Smith came down from Rochester with a 16-millimeter unsplit film made the substitution where they'd altered the film in various ways I've described and others yet not mentioned. Uh, uh, Jim, let me – let me. I mean there's a lot that we could – we could spend hours on the Kennedy assassination uh, alone, and uh, maybe you'll come back in the, in the future. And uh, I, I wanted to get into the – Paul Wellstone uh, theory that you have about his death. I don't know that we're going to have time for that uh, today. But one thing that I did want to uh, I did want to ask you about, and this issue has been thrust right back into the spotlight because of the recent uh, the recent court cases involving Alex Jones, is your theory about what happened at uh, at Sandy Hook. Now, uh, Sandy Hook was. The uh, the deadliest school shooting that we'd ever had. And uh, Alex Jones had raised questions and actually stated that he thought this was some sort of a false flag operation. Some of the family members uh, took Jones to court and uh, they received a major judgment recently in a case. There's going to be another case coming up in uh, in Connecticut. This was one of the the father of one of the Sandy Hook children uh, blasting Alex Jones. Can you describe last nine and a half years of the living hell that I and others have had to endure because of the negligence and the recklessness of Alex Jones. Now, um, you have also said that uh, that Sandy Hook may not have happened. You published a book titled Nobody Died at Sandy Hook. It was a FEMA drill to promote gun control. Now, the father of of one of these little boys that was killed at Sandy Hook sued for defamation and got a, a $450,000 judgment against you. Your book publisher personally apologized to the Posner family and agreed to take your book out of circulation. Now, uh, I can understand you're a, a very 
smart guy academically. I can see the amount of research that you put into issues. I can see how you structure an argument. You're obviously a military veteran. How in the world can you think that the Sandy Hook shooting didn't happen when when there are family members whose lives have been irreparably damaged saying that it did? I mean, you really think these people are all actors or something? Well, sure, they're posers. They're making a lot of money out of this, Frank. Uh, the 26 surviving families, we calculated that the sympathetic but gullible Americans contributed between 27 and $130 million in donation. Divide that by 26. That's one to five mil for faking having lost a kid at Sandy Hook. I think there are a lot of Americans who'd go along with that. This but so did the children Sophia's- not really die? Did the children not really die in your view? The children were all fabrications. You may recall. Uh, so you you don't uh, think Wayne Carver, the medical examiner, said that we didn't even allow the parents to come into contact with the kids, but identify them on the basis of photographs. That was appropriate because they only Jim, for Jim, the most part existed Jim, in the form of photographs. No, but Frank, Jim, Frank, you gotta you gotta let me lay this out a little bit because. There's such a widespread impression it was real, and it's just uh, well, it was real. It wasn't real. It was a a FEMA drill for crying out loud, Frank. I did the same thing I did with JFK. I brought together 13 experts, including six PhDs, to sort things out. We discovered the school had been closed by 2008. It was loaded with asbestos and other biohazard damage by a hurricane. There was even a flood in the area in 2000. Seven that did the further damage. Uh, there were no students or teachers there. It was a two-day FEMA drill presented as mass murder to promote gun control. We even found the FEMA manual, Frank. We even found a FEMA manual. And everything that occurred on the ground corresponded. You had a sign there. Everyone must but, check in. So how do, you explain, right in how do you explain the jury's decision in that $450,000 defamation judgment in favor of of the father of six-year-old Noah Posner? You mean against me? Yes. Well, that's because uh, I wasn't uh, the judge. There was, this was a divided trial. It's just like Alex Jones. Uh, frankly, it, it, there, the, there has been no judicial determination that anybody died at Sandy Hook. All of these cases have been decided on procedural grounds, and that includes Alex Jones' trial. I sought to intervene in all three of his trials, and you're right. We've only seen the first. There are two more to come to point out that they've never established that anybody died at Sandy Hook. It's all been based on presupposition, taking for granted a private media coverage as though that narrative had to be true. But, Jim, who who do you think these children were that were buried? Well, I mean, they weren't buried. They're they're mostly empty graves. They may have some rocks in them. Uh, One has an African-American doll in it. I mean, I'm just telling you that they they, Frank. Until you get into the evidence, it's easy to be played by the media because everyone's insisting on this phony story. But let me tell you what happened to me in Wisconsin. They have a summary judgment procedure that enables the judge to determine based on his subjective opinion whether or not evidence is reasonable or facts are true or not. In a normal summary judgment process, you have to establish your no disputed facts so that the judge simply applies the law. In Texas, for example, 
you'd have to take for granted everything that I as a defendant assert to wit that it was a FEMA drill, nobody died. I even have an FBI report for a consolidated crime for 2012 showing zero deaths in Newtown. Jim, I'm sorry. Uh, Jim, I have to I have to end it there. I, I'm, I'm trying to first of all, we're out of time. But, you know, I try to be polite uh, to everybody. But I, I find that to be incredibly bizarre and sad that you really think this way. And, I, and I, I take you at your word that you do believe this and are not doing this for attention or for money or something. But I, I don't know how you tell the parents of a five-year-old or a six-year-old that have been, that have been killed that, that their child didn't exist. And uh, I'm glad that the jury in this Wisconsin case uh, found against you and I'm all for uh, presenting all points of view, but in my view, this is not a, a point of view. Uh, this is this is pretty sick and disturbing that that you would that you would say this. And I, and I don't mean to be rude at all, but I, I find this to be absolutely atrocious. And, and maybe I'm at fault for you know for inviting inviting you on for a discussion like this. But I um, I don't know how you can you can. I hate to say this, but I don't know how you can live with yourself saying these sort of things. I appreciate the time, and uh, thank you. Uh, 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is uh, Justin Bieber. Sorry. If you ever want to know the uh, kind of music that we play on the show, you could join our Facebook group. Just search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's uh, M-O-R-A-N-O Radio Fans and Haters. And uh, it's also a forum for the issues, the subjects that we speak about on this show. And uh, not surprisingly, quite a few people uh, having comments right now about uh, my conversation with uh, Dr. Jim Fetzer, which is completely um, understandable. I, I cannot stress how much I um, disagree with, not disagree. I, I find I totally repudiate the um, things that he said about the Sandy Hook situation. And, um, and you know, I, I just, I know there's a lot of people that, uh, not a lot of people, I know there's some people that feel that way. They've called in. And uh, again, I'm all for giving an airing to every, you know, it's a, this is a conspiracy theory show, right? This is what we do. But uh, something like that, I mean, I think it's one thing to talk about the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot, which are relatively harmless, no matter what your view is on that. But uh, to have a view uh, that deals with um, children being murdered and say that they don't exist, I almost got chills as he was saying that so i want to distance myself from uh from you know dr fetzer's take on that and uh certainly his views absolutely 100 percent do not represent 
the uh, radio station at all, not in the least. By the way, you know, something that a lot of people believe in that um, I never really spent much time thinking about is the, well, you know who's coming up next hour is uh, Alex Bennett, longtime radio talk show host. He was uh, heard on Sirius for years. He was heard uh, on WMCA in New York for years, WPLJ in New York for years, with a lot of big stations out in the San Francisco Bay Area for years. And uh, he's going to join us in about uh, about a half hour, talk to us about what he's doing now in terms of podcasting, uh, share some radio memories and give us his take on the world of uh, on the world of the media as it stands now. Um, and and uh, I, the other thing I was going to add is my uncle Steve came over on Friday and he was experiencing anxiety and dizziness and headaches. And he asked me to put a candle in his ear and burn the candle. Are you up on this at all? Um, it's called ear candling. And my Uncle Steve swears by it, does it all the time, and he says it helps him. Now, I've done a lot of research into this, and it's something that's totally disputed by doctors, but apparently people have been doing it for thousands of years. So I don't know I don't know where you come down on this if there's any validity to it, but I'm curious if if you've experienced, I mean, it was the strangest thing in the world, burning this beeswax candle in my uncle's ear. And he's saying he noticed it right away, a reduction in all the earwax. He said he could hear again. So um, now I watched video after video, read article after article. Every single one says it doesn't work, but he swears by it. So I don't know if any of you have had experiences with it. Give me a call. I'd be curious. Ear candling. Does that work for you? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Alex Bennett joining me in about a half hour. This is the other side of midnight. Until next hour, in the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population. Make sure you get your dog or cats made or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. Everyone, this is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, coming up a little later this hour, we'll talk with Alex Bennett. I had a I had a whole agenda of things that I was going to get into this hour before we uh, talk with uh, Alex Bennett. But uh, honestly, I'm a little thrown by that uh, that James Fetzer interview. And, and and again, I I've heard Fetzer on other radio shows, other late night radio shows, talking about the Kennedy assassination. I had not heard him publicly uh, talk about that Sandy Hook incident. And, um, you know, I had read that there was a judgment against him for $450,000. But just to to read that and hear those words, um, I mean, it was the first time I I was just texting a friend of mine. That was the first time that I've ever had a guest on on any subject where um, the things they were saying actually made me nauseous and it actually made me physically ill. And, and again, maybe I'm at fault for having someone that ha- is that crazy 
on the radio when I know, you know, that that's kind of their history. And, you know, guilty is charged if that's the case. But, um, you know, I try to I try to, on the one hand, put everything out there and make this a place where every view, no matter how outlandish, can be given a voice. On the other hand, that was that was tough to hear. That was tough to hear. So um, I don't know. 800-848-9222. You want to be heard on any aspect of that, you can. 800-848-9222. Al is in Manhattan. Hello, Al. Hey, Frank. So I heard that interview. I'm amazed. Well, I'll tell you one thing. I have another level of respect for you because you didn't take that guy's nonsense, which was a complete, completely he was nonsense. And you were polite about it, much more polite than I would have been, but that's your style. But you made your point. You didn't take his nonsense. Bravo. Good for you. Don't take that nonsense. That's all I have to say tonight, Frank. I appreciate that, Al. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkama. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank, I got two things to touch on. Uh, number one is that interview you handled it very well. That guy was a nut. I mean, I watched that whole Sandy Hook thing unfurl on TV, read articles, and to say that didn't happen, that guy should be – he should be committed. Um, as far as uh, you were talking about um, the catalytic converters, uh listeners in New York, it's actually happening on Long Island. It happened in uh, Ronkakma. Uh, they were stealing them right off the driveways of cars. So they, they, they look for Hondas and these new um, hybrid vehicles. But there's a bracket you could buy, and even um, uh, the dealerships carry them. And cause, you know, being a mechanic, I knew about this years ago. Um, there's a bracket that can be mounted under your car. It's a shield, and it actually prevents the catalytic converter from being stolen. And it runs about 100 bucks. It could be removed and reinstalled if you had to have your catalytic converters changed. Mm. But um, uh, it's uh, I w- actually I was telling the police about it because they came door to door. It was right across the street from me. They went on somebody's driveway, mm. low-lit driveway, and they put out the catalytic converter. And uh, it didn't show up on my ring doorbell alarm, but uh, it's going around, man. It's, oh, it's no, here. absolutely. No, it's uh, – I, I mean, you heard those numbers I cited. It's a, it's a real problem. Joe, thanks for the call. 800-848-9222. Art is in Westchester County. Hello, Art. Yes, sir. Good evening. Uh, I'm a listener almost every night to you. Oh, thanks. And uh, I, I just heard to say you're going to get an, old, an old-time an uh, old radio uh, announcer on here to interview. And I was wondering if you ever heard of a guy named Dick Summers. He was on, like, in the 70s, late 70s, early 80s. Uh, do you mean Dick Summer from WNEW? Uh, yes, sir. That's yeah. probably him. Yeah. I, I, I think he's, he was one of the most interesting guys I, I, I ever heard talking on the radio. He could talk all night, no music. He was just a talk show. And, well, and first of all, I I, if you ever interviewed him, yeah. First of all, that's kind of what I do. I mean, I do speak all night. Yeah, I, 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 yeah. I, I, I know, I know, I understand. That's why I listen every night. Uh, uh, but second, no, I actually, I, I'm, I'm, I'm familiar with Dick Summer. I know he was on. Uh, he was also on PLJ. In fact, it might have been around the same time that Alex Bennett was on PLJ. And I know he was on uh, WNBC and and uh, WNEW. I never listened to him. Uh, I think um, you know maybe he was uh, a little bit before. Before my time, or maybe I just wasn't listening to the stations that he was on. Uh, but uh, no, I'm not. I'm. I've. I don't think I've ever heard him actually. Well, you can. 
uh, maybe he could probably pick up some of the stuff on YouTube. I think he's still alive out in Pennsylvania. I thought I heard that last year. Really? Oh, that's so. interesting. I, I will check it out. You know, I'm just oh, doing. Yeah. I'm just doing looking up some some stuff now, and uh, he he would play the theme song to um, the Milkman's Matinee. Which I think Deb Valentine's husband found for us, and that we still play from time to time on this show. So uh, I'll, I'll look into him further. I'm a little embarrassed, to be honest, Art, that I'm not familiar with him. Yeah, well, he, like I said, he's a very interesting guy. You'll, you'll probably enjoy him. And he used to do a thing called Mario Thumpers or something like that, where I, I, I think he, people called in, he asked some questions or something like that. That is real. I, I, I used to listen to him all damn night long. Yeah, well, hey, uh, it sounds like he sounds like my kind of guy. I will uh, look into him a bit further. Thank you, Art. 800-848-9222. Jim is in Stony Brook. Hello, Jim. Hey, Frank. Yeah, I'm beside myself here. I deliver papers in Stony Brook, New York. Do you know where that is? Yeah, yeah, my wife went to Stony Brook. All right, great. Uh, Right across the water is Connecticut. I deliver to a customer. I have the name and address. I don't know if you want it. Who is the grandmother of one of the children who died. Now, I have five grandchildren, five girls, and, and I'm I'm getting temp, uh, uh, upset right now as I speak to you. So I delivered to the grandmother for over 20 years. She, she had a daughter who winds up getting married, goes to Connecticut. The daughter's name is Grace. Um, she, she died that day. I'm sure I wasn't there, of course, and all that, blah, blah, blah. But, um, one day I missed this lady whose name I won't give you. Do you want her name, the lady who I delivered to, who's the grandmother? Do you well, want her I mean, name? No, I don't want to violate her, her privacy or anything you like that. It, you got it. Yeah. I don't think she would mind in a bit because I'm sure she's, she, she's not listening now, obviously. Um, but she would uh, – I can't imagine how she would feel to hear about the, a denial like this. Um, I'm losing track. At my age, I lose track of where I'm going. Uh, one day I missed her paper. And I, a day or two later, she ripped into me. She called me up. Jim, I can't believe She ripped into me. Frank, it was unbelievable. I like, it's just a paper. You know, I missed a news day. Sure. And uh, I was like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. You know all that stuff you do. A week later, this Mrs. Z, I'll say her name, Mrs. Z, and that's part of her name, uh, calls me up. She says, Jim, I want to apologize to you. I said, for what? Oh, I, I, she says, I, this was at the time we were burying or, or something or going to Connecticut. My granddaughter, Grace, was one of the people who died. I almost passed out. I was like, oh, my God. She apologized to me. She, she's a very, always was a nice person, except for that one call, which I totally understand. And to think that this guy gets on there and, and I, it just, Come on now, come on. This grandmother is would he say she's making this up? To yeah, me, I mean that's stranger? why it's so it's oh. so nonsensical, uh, Jim. And um, yeah. and uh, I appreciate uh, I appreciate the perspective. I mean, it's just I, I can't to say it's nonsensical is an understatement. I mean, it's just beyond absurd, beyond absurd. Eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Bob is in Manhattan. Hello, Bob. Good morning, Frank. How are you? First of all, I want to say I enjoyed your guest yesterday, Al, about how he raised his kids, uh, the twins and everything. It was fabulous stories, what he did when the kids wanted to move out. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting. Well, that was just a caller. I mean, I'm glad that he called, but I enjoyed his his call a great deal. Wish more parents were like that. 
And in the 70s, I studied massage with Ohashi. Ohashi is the fellow who brought Chatsu to America, and he did the air candling. And he would put a towel over your head. He'd have a bucket of water nearby in case you dropped the candle. But here's the main thing. They sell it in health food stores, and I, and I find it unconscionable. I've told them. They, they do both ears. He would only do one ear. He said, because you need bacteria in one ear, otherwise you may or can get a serious infection. He would do the other ear two months later. Well, you know, and I'm not really even certain that it does remove earwax because when my uncle, he's such a proponent of this. And so I spent uh, some time afterwards looking at some YouTube videos and they they had some instances where they did the ear candle in an empty glass, no ear, no earwax. And the ear can the candle that was in the empty glass. In many cases, it looked like it had the same substance in there as was in a, an ear candle that was in someone's ear. So, look, uh, clearly they've been doing it for thousands of years. So I have to think someone's been helped by this. And my uncle swears that he's helped by this. Uh, I just I don't know that there's any evidence to support. That, that it works. Now, Donna from Huntington wrote me. She said, I used to do ear candling when I was in my 20s. I don't know if it worked, but it seemed to take a lot of earwax out. At least it looked that way, but you shouldn't do it all the time. Earwax has a purpose, keeping dirt from getting into your inner ear, but I used to love doing it. So, you know, different strokes for different folks. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, David is in the Bronx. Hello, David. Yes, good morning, Frank. Listen, I don't normally condemn anything that you do on your program. You have people on that I vehemently disagree with. But it would have taken you two minutes looking at Wikipedia to find out how vile and disgusting Professor actually is. The, the man is a Holocaust denier. He thinks the Israelis were behind 9-11, among others. This is craziness. And the real danger in it, even though the guy sounds like a kook, is that there are millions of Americans who actually believe a lot of this stuff. I've encountered Holocaust deniers in New York City. I've encountered people who say that no Jews were killed on 9-11 because the Israeli Secret Service was behind it. And these are not nice people. So giving this guy a platform, you know, is not a good thing. And, you know, I don't know why you didn't do a little bit more research into his background, because like I said, I'm blind. It took me two minutes to find out how awful this person really is. Yeah, uh, David, that's all fair criticism. No, I I was I was uh, aware. uh, First of all, I've heard him on other radio shows and uh, my intention was speaking primarily about the Kennedy assassination. But because I had seen that he was sued for defamation, that Sandy Hook case, that's why I I asked him about it, because I think that affects his credibility on everything else. But uh, it's a fair criticism. I think um, uh, again, it's it's very different reading those words and and hearing someone say it. And I think if I could have done it over again, I probably would not have invited him on the air. But don't move, David. Stay there. Uh, Tom from the Bronx is on the line. Now, Tom, you were on um, – you called in when we spoke about that Alex Jones uh, situation. And you said essentially that you also believe that the Sandy Hook uh, shooting was a hoax. Do you still believe that? Yes, I do. And I I could add this. 
that if they had photos, which I wouldn't know, but they had photos of these kids that were uh, deceased and they were showing photos, I don't think any parent would want to show photos like that, one. The other is that what happens is when they want to play games, the FBI or CIA wants to play games with the American public, believe it or not, where they go is Canada. Well, I'm going to let David respond here. I I just don't understand what the the rationale would be for faking – a mass shooting like that. David, I'll give you the last word based on what Tom said. All right, yeah, let me just quickly address what he said about photographs. It's like with the shooting down in Texas. Why would any sane person want to see photographs of children that have been blown to bits? That says a lot about your caller. It says a lot about that conspiracy guy that you had on, that they would even want to see photographs of something like that, and they don't believe it. What parent would make up children that don't exist. How could you even do that in today's times? These well, well, and, really and need Tom, to think about what they're doing. Tom, I'll give, I'll give you the, the last word here just in response to my question. The jury that in the case of the father that sued James, Professor Fetzer, the jury found that he had committed defamation and ordered him to pay $450,000. Now, if there was evidence that there was, this was a hoax, why would Fetzer not have simply presented that evidence and not had to not have that $450,000 judgment against him? Well, let, let me put it, to, put it to you this way. Like I said, they they bring Canadians down to play games mm. with the American public. That's one thing. I know that for a fact. Uh, for, and the kids that may have been deceased, may the, the mother may have said, Johnny, you just get in his clothes. Uh, no, his Tom, Tom I, 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 you know, I, I'm sorry. I'm willing to continence a lot, but that's one. Uh, it, there's no truth to that whatsoever. It's not a matter of opinion. It's a matter of fact. There's no truth to that at all, at all. Uh, Alex Bennett joins me next. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I don't know if you believe in synchronicity, but I've become a big believer in synchronicity. I don't know if it's a reflection of your your uh, your mind sends out different vibes to the universe and then those things are reflected back to you. I don't know if you're just more attuned to certain things once you're thinking about them, but for the last month and a half or so, I have not been able to escape Alex Bennett. Uh, Everywhere I go, I am hearing about Alex Bennett. I run into Governor Patterson a month ago. First question he asked me, hey, uh, you remember you put me in touch with Alex Bennett a few years ago? Do you have his contact information? I had Malachi McCord on the radio last week. What does he make sure to mention? Alex Bennett. Richard Bay on the week before that. Who does he happen to mention? Alex Bennett. I was talking to Jay Diamond on the phone a couple of weeks ago. Who does Jay Diamond make a point to mention? Alex Bennett. Now, for those of you that have been following radio in New York, in California, or nationally for quite some time, you know who Alex Bennett is. For those of you that might not have been 
following uh, New York talk radio in its heyday or San Francisco talk radio in its heyday, you may be less familiar with Alex Bennett. And boy, are you in for a treat because this legendary radio talk show host and podcaster who you can currently hear on GabNet.net is kind enough to uh, stay up a little late with us tonight and uh, chat about what's happening in the world and in his life. Very, very pleased to welcome back Alex Bennett. Alex, it's great to talk to you again. Thanks for joining me. Well, it's good to talk to you, too. The only problem is that you did such a big build-up on me, I don't think I can live up to it. <laughs> oh, if only that were the case. Now, I know a lot of your New York terrestrial fans know you from your time at WMCA or your time at WPLJ, and then you develop this whole separate fan base uh, doing California talk radio. I'm wondering if you can explain uh, to people... That, I actually became a fan of yours much later... When when you started doing serious, but for people that uh, that have been following your career, or even people that may not be familiar with you, what led to you going from New York talk radio to California? Was that your choice, or was that just circumstances dictating that that happened? I'd say pretty much I got kicked out of New York. You know, I mean, it, it, you uh, you uh, have a certain amount of time in a city, and especially in those days, and then. Uh, you know, I was always very experimental in the kinds of things that I did. So my, I don't know, for some reason I had a harder time surviving, okay, than a lot of other people. I guess I, I couldn't be mediocre enough. I don't know. I don't know <laughs> what it was. So, uh, you know, I I was originally from San Francisco, and I got offered a job out there. and in, And eventually I went back there. And where here in New York, I was known as kind of the youth guru. I think that was the, the term the newspapers pegged on me um, because I would uh, interview, number one, I would interview all the, the leftist radicals of the day, like the Abby Hoffmans and the Jerry Rubens and the Dave Dellingers. But also, I was the first guy to start interviewing as on a regular basis uh, rock and roll acts. Nobody thought of talking to rock and roll artists at all in interviews before I did it. Uh, and and when I started doing it, it became so popular that now you can't think of, you know, rock people not being interviewed. But then I moved to the West Coast. And the, in those days, the wonderful thing about moving from one city to another is you could go reinvent yourself. So this time... I decided to go with comedians instead of rock people. Hmm. And uh, we I, every morning we would have comedians on, and we'd have a live studio audience. And, uh, you know, so I reinvented myself, which was a nice luxury you had in those days because the people in San Francisco didn't know what I did in New York, and the people who knew me from New York didn't know what I did in San Francisco. It, it was very strange. The, the the impression that I get with folks that listen to you in your New York talk radio days and in the San Francisco radio days is that listening to you, whether you were the youth guru, whether you were the rock guy, whether you were the comedy guy, listening to you was a very cool thing. It was a very trendy thing. It was something that young people did, and it was something that uh, that you were considered cool if you were part of the, the Alex Bennett crowd. You know, listening to... AM talk radio these days, 
I love it, but a lot of folks would not consider it necessarily cool. It's an audience that generally tends to skew older. I'm wondering what changed between the 1970s, the 1980s, and these days where talk radio and listening to certain talents on talk radio like you was trendy, was cool, was hip, to now it being something that uh, younger folks almost roll their eyes at. Well, if you remember, there is an organization once in radio called Clear Channel, mm. which is now, I believe, iHeartRadio. Uh, but it was Clear Channel, and the head of programming at Clear Channel uh, one time described talk radio as conservative talk. And I, I never heard that definition of it before. To me, talk radio was talk radio. And and when we would like I was on WMCA here in New York at one point and at WMCA, we had me was very much to the left and we had Bob Grant Mm -hmm. very much to the right. You had this 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 uh, group of people who all had a different differing opinion. But now you have radio stations that, you know, primarily I mean, talk radio is conservative. I'm sorry. You know, it'd be pretty hard put to find a host of a talk show uh, who's on the left. Well, that leads me to a question that I get asked all the time. And I wanted someone with your experience and your expertise at the craft of radio to answer it. In fact, somebody just asked me on the air this Friday, but I get asked this even off air all the time, which is why that's the case. Why have there have been a lot of very talented left of center hosts over the years? And yet uh, liberal talk radio, even in liberal cities, has never really been able to break through the way that conservative talk radio has in liberal cities like New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Chicago. Why do you think there is that is? Why is there not a, a, a left wing Rush Limbaugh, for instance? OK, let me let me try and give you the best answer I can. And maybe I'm wrong, but I think it has to do with the nature of the audiences. You know, it's funny. But left-wingers will listen to a right-wing talk show host because it makes them mad, okay? Uh, Yet they don't necessarily, but it doesn't go the other way. In other words, you won't find, uh, you know, a right-winger listening to Mm -hmm. a left-wing talk show host because they just don't even want to hear what they have to say. So it's kind of like, I guess, the conservative people – Especially Limbaugh. You know, we could use Limbaugh as a good example. Sure. In the very beginning, you couldn't find a more entertaining talk show. Oh, absolutely. And I don't think people tuned into Rush because of his right-wing opinions. It was because of the fact that he was purely entertaining and people found him funny and uh, self-pejorative and all all those things. In the beginning, he he was really good at what he did, you know. So in the beginning, Rush was quite entertaining. I think everybody else that came after Rush was a Rush wannabe, and they never understood what he was doing exactly. And I think maybe after a while, Rush started to take himself too seriously. 
But when he didn't, he was spectacular. Uh, this That's similar to the answer that I gave over the years. So you think it's both these Rush clones in terms of the hosts and the desire of these uh, talk program directors around the country that were carrying Rush to uh, mimic Rush Limbaugh's political commentary without necessarily carrying over his entertainment value. That's correct. That's absolutely correct. And the, the other thing is that, you know, I mean— uh, really, the trouble with with left wing talk show hosts is they have no idea how to entertain. I mean, even um, uh, people like Sean Hannity, and I mean, I'm talking about people here that I can't stand, you know, or Tucker Carlson, whose shows, TV show I was on every week uh, years ago. Um, they're basically out for themselves. Okay. They have no political beliefs. Forget it. You know, they're out for themselves. They're out to cash a big paycheck and to keep that big paycheck coming in and getting and doing anything it takes to get that audience. Whereas the left wingers, well, they take themselves a little more seriously, mm. you know. Um, and, I, and I think that's that's the difference between the two kinds of politics that are around today. I mean, I would love to see some real conservative politics out there but you don't see it anymore it's more self-serving politics rather than i mean if i were if i were a conservative i would be really mad at the kind of people who pass themselves off as conservatives well i, I think there are a lot of conservatives that uh, that that are do get pretty frustrated at the nature of uh, republicanism or conservatism these days if people are just tuning in uh, we're talking with alex bennett legendary radio talk show host and podcaster you can see him regularly on uh, gabnet.net uh, which we'll talk about in a minute you're doing some pretty creative things there but alex i uh, alluded to a conversation that i had with uh, with jay diamond about you last week or the other day i don't remember which it was he mentioned that he was just talking about the WMCA days again, that he was in studio in December of 1969 on your 30th birthday party uh, celebration. Peter Max was apparently in studio and a band called David Peel in the Lower East Side. Uh, It's difficult to imagine, uh, you know, a someone being 30 and being on a major radio station like that today, let alone getting, um, you know, uh, getting a big send-off for a 30th birthday party. I'm wondering what you remember about that particular occasion. Well, I don't remember Peter Max being there, but if he was, I will defer to anybody who says he was. Um, I was, at the time, I believe, the youngest person working a regular radio program in New York City, Okay. Um, uh, I, 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 I started when I was 29 in New York, so I was pretty young. Uh, today you probably find younger, you know, but then you didn't. Uh, and, uh, it was, uh, you know, it, I, it was always a fight because what I was having, trying to do is I was trying to do a show for an audience that had never been served. Mm a younger audience. Now, the only way they had been served is, I will throw out some rock and roll at them and they'll be happy and uh, we won't have to do anything but play music. But they never had the idea that a talk show host could play to a young audience. And that's what I did. And uh, so that, you know, that's the way that went. 
But, you know, to think that I was 30 and somebody remembers me having my 30th birthday party and I, you know, I just turned 82. Uh, it kind of is scary. So don't bring it up again. Got it. Got it. Duly noted. <laughs> Duly noted. When uh, when we've talked to uh, Jimmy J.J. Walker on this show, when I've talked mm-hmm. to Curtis Lewa about you, uh, when uh, yeah. different fans have written to me about you, a lot of folks tend to bring up your your relationship with, with John Lennon. And I'm wondering if you could set the record straight once and for all. What kind of a relationship did you have with John Lennon? What was he like to interact with on a personal level? Well, I had more of a relationship, oddly enough, with Yoko than I did with John. Uh, I found Yoko very intelligent, a very smart kind of artist. I enjoyed uh, do, seeing her work, and I even did a work with her. Uh, I, uh, but John uh, was different. John was very quiet, you know. Uh, everybody imagines, oh, I'll meet John Lennon. Here I will meet this, this guy who just you know, exudes intelligence and whatever. No, he was a very quiet guy. Uh, in fact, you'd almost think he was dumb. He wasn't, but you would think so, because he played it so quietly and close to the vest. And I got to know both of them uh, while they were here in New York. I can't say we were best of friends. They didn't come out and hang out at, the, at my apartment or anything. But we knew each other. And uh, we had a we had a relationship, at least professionally and and somewhat convivially with each other. So, um, you know, that, that's the most I can say about John. But uh, the, whenever anybody asked me what would what what was he like, I said if you met him, you'd think he was stupid. <laughs> wow. Uh, that's hey, speaking of the Beatles in the late 60s, there was this rumor that uh, took root that uh, Paul McCartney had died. And yep. w- whenever people in the New York area anyway, look back at the media coverage of that Paul McCartney death rumor, your name ends up coming up. Now, for people that might be a little younger or may not remember 1969, what was your involvement in the Paul McCartney death rumor well i don't like the term involvement because that almost seems like i created it you know uh what happened was the whole thing started on my show uh because one night i came into work this was at wmca and the receptionist said to me i keep getting calls tonight from people who want to know if you're going to talk about this paul uh, the fact that Paul McCartney might be dead. And I said, gee, I don't know. I didn't hear. And then I remembered that about a month earlier, I had gotten a call from somebody about Paul McCartney being dead. And here was the reasons why. And then we talked about it for a while. And then a couple other people called. And for the rest of the night, we had, had, um, 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 talked about this and then the next day it was on the other stuff right now it's a month later and all of a sudden this thing that was just a little germ had like exploded into this national myth and um so i went on the air that night and i I remember my first words were where is paul mccartney tonight and uh from then on it was about three days of 
the entire show, which my show in those days was five hours long, mm. of, uh, of talking about, you know, Paul McCartney and why he was dead and why is they barefoot on and why is he barefoot on the Abbey Road cover and blah 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 blah, blah playing records backwards and everything. By the third night, I had had it. I get a call from the boss. He says to me, uh, "Do you think you can keep this going another night?" I said, "If if I have to do this another night, I'm going to shoot myself." <laughs> he said. You ever been to London? I said, no, never. I've never been to Europe. He said, well, if you can keep it going another night, you're going there. And so the next day they sent me to London to suss out whether Paul McCartney was dead or not, you know. Uh, And uh, so that was my so-called, quote, involvement. Uh, tell me about your your transition from WMCA uh, 570 on the AM dial to WPLJ, which was a legendary station, 95.5 FM. Uh, what what led to that change from WMCA to PLJ? Well, it's, it's called getting fired. <laughs> uh, what happened was is that, you, you know, as I said, doing a show for a young audience at a time when really that wasn't considered the thing to do. Uh, carried with it a lot of uh, fragility. And I had a boss, R. Peter Strauss, who, you know, he didn't quite get it, right? And all of a sudden, they made a deal, and they were going to be carrying the New York Yankees. And uh, that would mean that for a half a year, I wouldn't be on the air at night. So they decided that rather than keep me employed, they just let me go. And so they fired me, mm. and it became a big cause celebre. I mean, a thousand people showed up in front of the radio station protesting it, and I had nothing to do with it, you know. And uh, so because of all that publicity, and I had full-page articles in the New York Times about this and Variety. There were four mm. different articles on one page in Variety about the whole thing, and uh it was enough that somebody over at the WPLJ said, hey, why don't you come on over here and, and do your thing over here? You'll be more at home here. And so I went there, and I was there longer than I was at WMCA. I was there for about five years. So, so uh, tell folks what you're doing now. Uh, you do a, a regular show on uh, GabNet.net. It's not at all like what people might be accustomed to seeing in the world of radio or in the world of podcasting, where you have somebody just pontificate about what's on their mind or interv- inter- interview an individual guest. You almost host these uh, these daily panel discussions with uh, a bunch of interesting folks from a bunch of different backgrounds. How did this idea came about? And tell people what, what you're doing now. Well, I've never done anything by design. Uh, things happen. How, how? What's the best way I can put it? Because they're organic. Mm-hmm. Okay, that'd be the best way to put it. And uh, I'm, when I suddenly was not on uh, Sirius XM any longer, uh, the following Monday, I immediately said, I got to be somewhere. So we went and we did a, uh, a show with video. Uh, there was going to be a podcast. And uh, one thing led to another. Part of the problem is, as you know, you know, how do you do this show? I, you, you, I'm talking to you over the telephone, and you've got a situation mm-hmm. where you're an engineer, and they plug you into the phone and blah, 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 blah. 
and you and the, you pay the phone company a lot of money for that uh, that uh, hookup. Well, I, I didn't have that kind of money, and you know, if I wanted to have like two or three people on at a time, I'd have to have two or three lines. And I figured, what can I do? And I suddenly saw there was this thing called Skype, and I could have people on Skype, and it wouldn't cost anything. All right. So I made it a Skype. People do Skype calls, and then I realized I can have one per, more than one person on at a time. So by the time we were through, we had a thing we called citizen panels, in which you know I could pick upwards to fifteen people at a time, all sitting around discussing things with each other, and and then that's really what it's become. It's a show about a bunch of people just getting together and talking about stuff some nights it's political other nights it's just goofy and talking about entertainment and whatever but it's just whatever we tend to talk about at the moment um you do an afternoon show as well on uh on uh mondays that's a bit different from the wednesday through friday night show that you do um what is what's different about the afternoon show versus the evening show that you do I call it nice people, nice talk. Uh, I decided that I was sick and tired of, at least I do it three nights a week, of, of having people get contentious, okay? Especially in what is a politically contentious time. Mm. I just found by accident that if I did something at 4 o'clock in the afternoon on a Monday, everybody tended to be nicer. <laughs> so we had just been very proud of the fact that it's a nice hour. Okay, just people chatting with each other and enjoying talking to each other and talking about different stuff. And politics hardly ever comes up. You know, it sounds delightful. Uh, I've got to make an effort to uh, to check that one out as well. As you mentioned, you're 82 years old now. I, I, uh, I've heard you describe that you live in a, a relatively nice apartment in, in Manhattan. I'm guessing you don't need to continue to do this to pay the bills. Why do you still do this? Uh, because I'd probably drop dead tomorrow if I didn't. <laughs> you know, I mean, number well, I, you know, it is getting rougher. As I'm getting older, you know, I used to be able to go on for four hours a night and talk, 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 talk. And now I'm, it, it's hard for me to get through an hour sometimes because I'm a lot, I'm not as, as uh, alert. In fact, I talked to you and said, we got to do this thing a little earlier than when you want me to do right. it because right. by the time you, you get me, then I'll, I'll be a mess, you know? So it, it, it's, um, but I do it because, uh, you know, just to keep my chops up. That's the reason. Um, it isn't because I love radio, because radio, I mean, I hate to insult you by saying this, radio really doesn't exist anymore. You know, and if it does, it's a faint memory. And as you say, it gets a lot of older people listening to it. Uh, and I loved radio. I just I just adored radio. I, I grew up on radio when I was a child, listened to all those shows like Jack Benny and Edward Bergen and Charlie McCarthy and Yes, even Amos and Andy, as racist as some people think it was. And I grew up on radio, and I was a child of radio. When I went to do radio, I tried to bring some of that with me, and I just have always loved the medium. I've done television. I have two Emmys for TV. I could care less about television, you know? 
There's something about radio that I always loved, but the radio I love just doesn't exist anymore. Mm. And I have to really realize that. And, um, you know, I don't know that the podcast is an advancement, but it certainly has taken over this place that, that radio has. Because some of your biggest shows out there are podcasts. Oh yeah, no, no, no doubt about it. Speaking yeah. of radio, did, did I? Someone told me that your mother became a radio DJ in her eighties or something like that. Is that accurate? She was about seventy-eight, I think, at the time. She eventually lived to be a hundred. Um, she, um, I was doing a show, in, my first show in San Francisco at KMEL, and. Uh, my mother appeared with me at a roast that uh, Kevin Pollack held a roast for me. And uh, my mother was at the roast and people loved her, you know, because as I told her, she says, what am I going to say? I don't know what to say. I said, look, you're an old lady. Anything <laughs> you say, they're going to laugh at. Okay. And I was right. She And she was a smash. So the station decided to give her a, a, uh, Sunday night program called Ruth Bennett's uh, Top Ten Countdown. And it was like, you know, like a Casey Kasem-style thing. And uh, she got so well-known that eventually uh, we get a call from The Tonight Show, Johnny Carson. <laughs> and they want her on the show. And she turns them down. Why did she turn down the Tonight Show? I didn't turn it down. She no. Why did down. she turn it down? Oh, I don't know. I just wouldn't want to go on there. I don't know what I would say. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. And I'm going, God, you know, I, all my life I've worked in this business. I've worked my brains out to, <laughs> to get to the point where Johnny Carson would call me and say, "Want to come do my show?" And I know it didn't happen to me. It happened to my mother. Oh, that that is uh, that is terrific. Uh, before yeah. I let you go, I, I have to ask you about an instance on, in, I think it was in your WPLJ days, one of my favorite Larry K King moments of all time is this uh, recording of him reminiscing about uh, his early in his radio career that he goes and meets a woman for a romantic liaison that called the radio station and he uh, ultimately ends up having to go back to the radio station because the record got stuck when he uh, let it left it on to go uh, go meet this woman. You had an interesting moment where a woman with a very sultry voice convinced you to meet her after your air shift, didn't you? Yeah, it's, it's a very long story, and I can't, wouldn't get into it now. But basically, she had a very sexy voice, and I had a friend of mine who was listening in on the conversation because I had told him this woman would call every night when I got off the air. And he's listening to it, and he she finally says, why don't you come over? And he, he whispers in my ear, I dare you. Well, you know, I mean, and then, then he did the other thing. It's a New York deal. I double dog dare you. <laughs> and so I said, okay, I'll go over. And it was the McAlpin Hotel. And I swear, I go up to her, her room, and she opens the door. And she's wider than the door jam. <laughs> and, and I won't tell you what went on, but I will tell you that later on that morning, because I was this is my all night show, so this was early morning. I go home, 
And my friend calls me and he goes, well, and I said, it was spectacular. It was the most spectacular <laughs> sex I've ever had. All right. And he says, oh, okay, well, I'll talk to you later. And he hangs up. Two hours later, he calls me back. He goes, you son of a bitch. I said, what happened? I said, well, you know, I went up there. <laughs> and she opened the door, and and I told him what she had said to me when the door opened. And he said, she looked at me and went, you don't have to come in if you don't want to. He said, what else was I going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Leslie, um, John Sterling was on WMCA in those days, still obviously an integral part of the New York Yankee broadcast. Those of us that are Mets fans are still smarting from uh, the uh, Yankee defeat of the Mets last night. But um, you got to be on WMCA the same time that John Sterling was there. I've heard, what was he like as a broadcaster in those days? I, I re- seem to remember some reference to you saying that he was talking to himself. Is that accurate? He was a self-talker, yeah. Yeah, I, I, he, I finally realized the guy was nuts. Uh, <laughs> and this yeah. was when he was young. And this was when he was young. Yeah. I'm, I'm at the, in the control room at WMCA one day, and uh, – He's out in the, you know, there's like this, what we call airlock in those days. There were two doors that led into the control room, two doors that led into the, you know, in his studio. So he had an airlock in between. And he's in the airlock and he says, so what are you doing after the show? And I'm thinking he's talking to me. So I go, I don't know. Why are you asking, John? <laughs> and then he continues. He says, well, I don't know. Why don't we go out and have dinner? Well, maybe we will have dinner. And I'm going... This guy's holding a conversation oh, with himself. <laughs> That's now, very I don't funny. know if that continued, if he sought help or whatever, but that was John. That's the John Sterling I remember. Was there another sports talk show host in those days that answered the door in a dress? Not that I know of. You know, that's the thing with being Alex Bennett is there's just such a myth that uh, that surrounds you because you've inspired so many generations, not only of fans and radio listeners, but a lot of other talk show hosts that uh, that started out by being fans of yours. Obviously, it's been uh, well documented what a big fan Howard Stern was of your work. And a lot of folks have said he will. He he will. He well, he has admitted it, but privately to other people. But he. All, all the while that I was in San Francisco, he would say, oh, Alex Bennett stole my act. And I'm thinking to myself, how can I have stolen his act? I mean, he was a kid when I was doing radio. Yeah. In more recent years, I think I have heard him uh, give you credit on, a, on an occasion give, or two. He'll give me begrudging credit, you know. But not, uh, you know, I mean, I give credit to all the people that influenced me. You know, I... I'm very proud to say that I'm the sum total of a lot of great radio people that I was influenced by when I was growing up. Who were some of the folks that influenced you? Well, my biggest was a guy by the name of Don Sherwood in San Francisco, and you probably never heard of him. Don Sherwood was maybe the biggest radio personality in the country. He owned San Francisco. I mean, you you could drive... You could walk down the street, and if people had portable radios, you would hear the, the same sound coming out of windows and out of cars, and it was Don Sherwood. There was 
virtually nobody didn't listen to Don Sherwood in the morning in San Francisco. And he was truly a great radio personality because you listen not for jokes or anything else. You listen to see what was happening to Don Sherwood today. Hmm. Hmm. uh, He was a big influence to me. Uh, And um, I, in fact, went and sat in on one of his shows once. And I think that if I wanted to be anybody, I wanted to grow up and be Don Sherwood. And in a weird sort of way, I didn't say. Absolutely. Uh, Alex Bennett, I could talk with you all day. I hope we can do this again soon. I appreciate the time. Well, let's do it. I appreciate you asking. Me. Thank you, Alex Bennett. Check him out uh, regularly. Gabnet.net. If you're interested in people being nice to each other, tune in on Mondays. Gabnet.net. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Star, uh, this is the other side of midnight. Uh, we'll go through your mail next hour. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, you can email me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. That's Frank.M-O-R-A-N-O at WABCRadio.com. We'll have uh, the next hour to take your calls on a wide variety of subjects. We've got the $1,000 Minute coming up. Uh, give you a chance to win some money and a bunch of other fun things uh, for the next hour or so. Uh, by the way, tomorrow on this show, I'm going to be joined by legendary radio DJ Cousin Brucey. How fun is that? I'm pretty excited about it. Hopefully, uh, hopefully you'll tune in for that as well. Until next hour, help control the... Uh, excuse me. Your influence counts. Make sure you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, longtime critic of Andrew Cuomo. I have been critical of Andrew Cuomo publicly and privately with, uh, and again, not unfairly critical. When he's done good things, I've had no problem praising him. But I have been pretty regularly, consistently critical of Andrew Cuomo for the last 20 years, more or less since 
right before his 2002 run for governor. And uh, I, I think a lot of my criticisms have proved prescient. Um, in politics, especially for someone that's a national political figure like Andrew Cuomo, and especially with the incredible ride that we all experienced during the pandemic, I don't think anybody was more of a national political figure except maybe Donald Trump than Andrew Cuomo was during the pandemic. But in politics, there's a couple of things that really count in terms of getting elected. One is money. If you have money, either your own personal wealth or significant campaign contributions, that counts for a great deal. That's number one. Number two is, and none of this is exactly groundbreaking. This is all pretty pretty common sense. Number two is name recognition. If you have name recognition, that counts for a lot. Three is if you have an understanding of the political chessboard, if you are a skilled political strategist, that counts for a lot. And there are other factors as well, like ability happens to be one. Um, But for the first three factors that I mentioned, the Andrew Cuomo is three for three. Andrew Cuomo has money in terms of campaign money that he can spend on a future campaign. Number two, he has um, an incredible amount of name recognition. Now, much of it's negative, but not all of it. And number three, there is nobody that is a better political strategist than Andrew Cuomo. He's almost Machiavellian in how he pursues his political goals. That's why I was very interested in this article in the New York Post on Sunday. Andrew Cuomo hiding in shame but plotting return to politics according to sources. And this article in the Post goes on to quote several sources close to Andrew Cuomo that indicate that Cuomo, while he's laying low now, is spending all day, every day, waiting, waiting to return to politics. Now, he doesn't need the money. They're letting him keep the $5 million he got for his book, which is amazing. So the guy's fine financially. He's got $10 million at least in campaign finance that he's sitting on. He's 64 years old, still a relatively young man. And insiders told the New York Post that he has not given up on politics. So my question for you is, what do you think Andrew Cuomo is going to do? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Obviously, there was a lot of speculation this year that he might run for either attorney general or governor as either a Democrat in the Democratic primary or as an independent. None of those two things happen. I I don't know what Andrew Cuomo is going to do. And I don't know that Andrew Cuomo knows what Andrew Cuomo is going to do. If I were to speculate, though, I would not be surprised to see him run for U.S. Senate in 2024, either against Gillibrand in a primary or if Gillibrand chooses not to run for re-election and there's a wide-open contest for that nomination, Andrew Cuomo could slip in in a plurality. I mean, if there are um, three or four candidates, one ultra-progressive candidate, one candidate that's backed by organized labor, one candidate of this ethnic group, one candidate of that ethnic group, 
Andrew Cuomo could slip in with 25, 30% of the vote, which I think if you look at the diehard Cuomoholics within the Democratic primary in New York, the people that would be voting, I think he could get 30% of the vote. And in a multi-candidate race with no ranked choice voting, that's enough to get nominated. So I could see Andrew Cuomo running for U.S. Senate. Remember, that's the job. And maybe next time we talk with David Patterson, maybe we'll ask him about this. That's the job that he was seeking when Hillary Clinton left to become Secretary of State. He wanted Governor Patterson to appoint him as the U.S. Senator. Patterson wisely chose not to. But um, I think that's the most likely job that I see him running for. Now, I don't think his ego could take running for a lower position, something like um, Congress or state legislature. I don't see that happening for Andrew Cuomo. I think he would do well to get himself a little dose of humility by running for a lower office. I just don't think he has that in in his constitution, personally. What do you think? I'm curious, do you think, do you buy this, that Andrew Cuomo is plotting a comeback? And number two, what would an Andrew Cuomo comeback look like? What do you think he'd run for? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. I'm going to link to this New York Post article on my Facebook page if you haven't seen it. That's facebook.com slash Fan. That's facebook.com slash Fan. Now, he doesn't really have a, uh, a home at the moment. So in theory, I mean, look, Congress, you could run anywhere in the whole state. U.S. Senate, you could live anywhere in the whole state and run. But uh, in theory, he could run for he could run for something in Westchester because he does have a, a home that he occasionally stays at in Westchester. Could run for something out on Long Island. I'm sure there's a way for him to run for something in Queens. Uh, he could set up residency in a place that's politically advantageous for him and run there. So what do you think he will do? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight ninety two twenty two. Greg is at the Jersey Shore. Hello, Greg. I had told your screener that I wanted to make a comment about the Alex Bennett interview. Uh, this was pretty cool. When he was on WPLJ back in nineteen seventy one, and I actually heard this. He had John Lennon as a live in studio guest late at night. And John Lennon got sick and actually threw up over the air. He had to excuse himself. And I heard this, and Alex talked about it for a long time after that. Now, somewhere there's got to be an air check of that. But it was incredible. For a few seconds, it was really chaotic. Also, when WMCA sent Alex Bennett to London to investigate the Paul is Dead rumor, That really was huge. It made national headlines. And what WMCA did back then, they produced a large yellow button which said, Paul lives, WMCA swings, which became a collector's item. And I still have one of those. And I remember when Alex got fired, there was quite a feud between him and uh, Bob Grant after that. I know Bob Grant came to WMCA in 1970, but uh, there there was a protest in front of the WMCA studios, and it was a very big deal. But if you ever talk to Alex again, uh, remind him, uh, ask him about the time that John Lennon got sick over the air. I don't know what John's problem was, but uh, 
but I remember that. And and one last thing, when uh, when WABC used to be at the old location above Madison Square Garden, I know for years and years you had in the corridor outside the studio, you had a picture on the wall of Cousin Brucey with the Beatles interviewing them in their hotel room. Mm -hmm. I know now you're at a, a different location. Does, do you still have that photo? Yeah, I think, it, I think it's still on the wall, right? Yeah, it's still on the wall. We, we pass it all the time, actually. And uh, I'll, I may mention that when uh, Cousin Brucey comes on tomorrow. 800-848-9222. 1-800-848-9222. By the way, speaking of politics, today is primary day. In many states, including New York, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in Florida. It's certainly going to be interesting to see what happens in New York. Big shout out to everybody uh, that is getting up early today uh, and listening to us now who doesn't normally listen to us because they're working on campaigns or they're working on uh, at the Board of Elections. Especially big shout out to uh, my mom, Stephanie. She's actually usually listening at this time anyway. And uh, my friend uh, Joan Graves, who's a, a big listener to this show, doesn't get to listen as much as she'd like to because she sleeps at somewhat normal hours. But she's up today to uh, to do stuff for primary day. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Mike is in Lake George. Hello, Mike. Good morning, Frank. Howdy. Good morning. Uh, you know, here's one for you. Um, Andrew Cuomo. I grew up in Oceanside. I spent so much time as a kid uh, at Long Beach Boardwalk. I volunteered uh, after Sandy uh, Red Cross, and they had a ribbon-cutting ceremony at the boardwalk. And there's Andrew Cuomo. So I, I said a few things to Andrew. Um, but you know what? Uh, uh, what he did uh, was despicable. Um, and he's laying in the shadow somewhere, and he's going to resurface. He's staying, as you mentioned, you know, his sister's house, his brother, a disgraced Chris, from CNN, his house, but, um, you know, uh, he, he's, uh, he's devious, you know, and he's going to uh, resurface, uh, somewhere, but, um, you know, he lost a lot of his credibility, but people have short memories after a while, right, Frank? So, uh, he's going to, uh, yeah, he's going to uh, show his face, you know, um, because that's, that's what he is and he'll, he'll have a, you know, He'll have a drive to run for Senate or something like that. So what do you think he will run for, if anything? I don't really know. Uh, probably Senate. Uh, but but he, he's, um, uh, you know, he's given it so much thought that, you know, he will show his face eventually. And I'll tell you this about Long Beach, uh, Frank. I know I mentioned it before. Uh, thoughts and prayers for Bernie. I met Bernie at Lido uh, uh, Beach and the boardwalk. Um, but when you got a chance – you got to check out Jordan's lobster farm. I went to, we go back 60 years, Steve Jordan, but uh, you, you'll enjoy it with your wife and Carmine. Uh, beautiful spot. But uh, Andrew Cuomo, uh, shame on you. He's a Pace Brut in Italian, you know, and Pace uh, Dewey, a Two Face. Mm -hmm. But uh, all right, Frank. Thank uh, you, Mike. Always good chat. Thank you. Appreciate it. 800 848 9222. Nine two two two. Uh, let me say hello to Larry in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Frank, hi. You know, I I thought you knew politics. Um, you know, uh, in, in case of Andrew Cuomo, right now he's living out his eternal punishment. Uh, his 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 star has sunk, and it will never rise again. Similar to De Blasio, you saw what happened when De Blasio wanted to run. He was shot down. Nobody, nobody was interested. The same thing's going to happen to Cuomo. Now Cuomo 
has blood on his hands. Because this no bail law was his construction. He put it in the budget where they had to vote for it. Think about how insidious and evil that is. Okay? He is responsible for all this carnage in society. This And for what? He knows better. He knows a lot better. Okay, And not only that, but he put the exclamation point on this carnage with his own criminality. So if this man ever dares surface, someone's going to snip his nose right off. Well, I think uh, it's not a question of uh, if, if, but when, Larry. I think he's certainly going to run again. Now, my understanding of the bail reform law is obviously you have to blame Cuomo because he signed it into law as part of the uh, as part of the budget, as you mentioned. My understanding, and this comes from a lot of legislators on both sides of the aisle um, that uh, you know were involved in a lot of the behind the scenes negotiation. Andrew Cuomo was not the person, and again, I have no interest in defending Andrew Cuomo, but he was not the person that pushed for bail reform. He went along with bail reform because that's what uh, Carl, Carl Hasty, the Speaker of the State Assembly and the Majority Leader of the State Senate, Andrea Stewart-Cousins, wanted, and uh, that's where the legislature was going. But he was actually privately urging a lot of Democratic legislators particularly in moderate districts like on Long Island and elsewhere, to vote against bail reform and not include it in the budget. And he did, uh, whatever, I'm not going to go through the whole history of bail reform, but the danger is when you run for statewide office or when you run for Congress or when you run for anything that's not within New York City, there's no ranked choice voting. So that means Andrew Cuomo could win with 20 percent of the vote, 25 percent of the vote. You could have a situation where 75 percent of Democrats don't want Andrew Cuomo, and yet he slips in. I think you could see that this year in um, the uh, race for the 10th Congressional District. I think you could see Dan Goldman win with 20 percent of the vote because of the wide field of candidates. And, and again, to my, in my view, it's just yet another textbook example of why we need uh, ranked choice voting. But uh, that's, that's a separate discussion. Uh, New York Post is reporting that Andrew Cuomo is lying in wait, waiting for a political comeback opportunity. My question for you is, what do you think that comeback opportunity is going to look like? If you were to guess, what is Cuomo going to run for in the future? 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Eight open lines if you want to comment on uh, on this or anything else that we've covered thus far. That's 800-848-9222. Coming up uh, in about uh, 10 minutes, we're going to do the $1,000 minute where we're going to do – we're going to try and give somebody a chance to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. I am hoping that we have a better – display than we had yesterday if you didn't hear yesterday's show you're quite lucky in in this particular instance because we had a guy on seemed like a nice guy and i'm not picking on this guy at all but we had a guy on and i asked him what is the first name of the playwright shakespeare and he said i can't answer it i can't name it and i figured the guy's nervous because that's supposed to be one of the easy questions figure the guy's nervous and i said oh it starts with w now, even if you don't know the answer, I mean, it's the most obvious name that starts with W is William. So this fella says he guesses Willard, which to me was such a peculiar guess. Willard is such an obscure name in comparison to William. Uh, and then 
We're talking after the show, uh, Matt Blaze, Alex Barnard, and me. We're listening to a catalog of Alex Barnard's complaints and um, wondering why the podcast can't get posted properly. But anyway, so he says, yeah, I don't know anybody named Willard except for Willard Fillmore. And then this is a textbook example of me being too tired. I should have said nothing, right? And I should have put a pin in that (laughs) and come back on the air. And I said, Alex, who do you think Willard Fillmore is? And he says, wasn't he a president? And, of course, Willard Fillmore was not a president. And um, I informed Alex that it was actually Millard Fillmore. I have no idea. They're very disrespectful to the memory of Willard of uh, Millard Fillmore, who was our last Whig president, and a New Yorker, a New Yorker. To think that we'd forget a New York president like that is just, or to, to make him Willard is terrible. You know whose first name is Willard? Willard Mitt Romney. So um, maybe uh, maybe that fellow from yesterday had Willard Mitt Romney on the brain. But that's a good general rule of thumb. If you don't know William Shakespeare's first name, eh, maybe don't participate. In the thousand dollar minute, if you know if you know Shakespeare's first name is William, then eh, okay, that's probably probably makes sense. Getting a whole bunch of people sending me articles on this uh, ear candling situation, and I it's so far it's looking about seventy thirty, and we'll go through some of your email in about fifteen minutes, but it's looking about seventy percent of the people think that it's a crock. And the other 30% of people, they're all into this ear candling. So, as I always say, it's uh, different, different strokes for different folks. Whatever works for you, make, you know, God bless you. 800-848-9222 if you want to weigh in on that. Hey, you know what I'm eager to see uh, if, if this comes to fruition and what it looks like if it does come to fruition? I thought about, two, about three or four years ago the coolest thing in the world was movie pass. I thought it was so neat. Um, now, it's so funny because I can't remember the last time I was at the movies, probably December of last year. But movie pass was a fascinating, fascinating experiment. And what it was was you'd pay a monthly fee, a very reasonable fee. I think it was, I don't remember what it was. It might have been $30, maybe even less than that. And if you, $30 a month or $20 a month, and you could go to the movies as much as you wanted for the month. At, go every day if you wanted. It was really neat. And it incentivized going to the movies again. And lo and behold, it did not work out. Somehow, somehow the economics of that didn't work out. And uh, they had to shut down. And then there was all sorts of controversies involved. Well, now Movie Pass is moving forward with its comeback with a new beta service around Labor Day. It, I got to say, I am rooting for this. Um, I hope th- this works out, and I hope we're going to see something where you could pay a monthly fee and see as many movies as you want. And uh, in, in a, I mean, it's not going to affect me much anyway because I don't have time to see anything. I thought Netflix, when it first started, was so great in that you could watch as many movies as you wanted what? All you have to do is send the DVDs back? Now I'm at the point where I'm keeping these DVDs for months because I don't have time to watch anything. So I, I'm sure the same thing will be true with MoviePass. But 
I am hoping that uh, that it comes to fruition. So this new Movie Pass beta app is going to be accessible by invite only by joining a wait list that's going to be available starting at 9 a.m. Thursday, according to the website. I'm going to sign up for that wait list. I am. So the wait list will offer priority access to the service and will be open for five days. The website says those who join the limited wait list will also get to they'll also get 10 friend invites. After the wait list is closed, the only way to join will be through an invite from a friend. Meanwhile, the service won't be available nationwide until on or around September 5th and markets will be launched in waves. So what they're saying is that the launch determination will be weighted on level of engagement from the wait list in each market as well as locations of exhibition partners. So uh, the reboot is being led by original co-founder Stacy Spikes. So uh, hopefully this works out. Um, Earlier this year, Spikes said he believes, yes, it's a he, that MoviePass can account for 30% of U.S. ticket sales by 2030. They've got to figure something out because a lot a lot of people just aren't going to the movies anymore. They like the comfort of uh, being home. They like the fact that you can pause whatever you're watching, go get a snack, use the restroom. They like the fact that uh, they could sit in their own comfortable chair and start the film whenever they want to start it. Um, during its peak in 2018, MoviePass was responsible for nowhere near of ticket sales. It was responsible for about 4% of the overall market share. So what's interesting is that MoviePass may have failed, but to some extent the MoviePass model was very successful. AMC, Regal, Cinemark, those are the three largest theater chains in the U.S. They have each launched their own subscription-based offerings in the wake of MoviePass's downfall. So um, so we'll see. I don't know how much they're going to charge, but I am interested to see if this works out. And I am going to try and sign up for the uh, the wait list. So we'll see where it goes. All right. 800-848-9222. That's 800-848-9222. Uh, I'll tell you what we'll do. Why don't we take a quick break and we'll do the $1,000 minute in just a moment. And if you want to be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222, we'll give you an opportunity to answer 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. If you could do that, you'll win the $1,000, and then uh, we'll go through your mail. So uh, criticism is welcome. Um, questions are welcome. Humor is certainly welcome. Uh, so you can email me at uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Seventh caller, 800-848-9222. We'll answer some trivia questions straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This summer, dive into the many cools of San Antonio. Because as soon as the temperature rises, so do the many cool things to do. Come keep cool with amazing pools and the hottest nights at the coolest spots in Texas. Go to visitsanantonio.com slash summer. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
This is the other side of midnight. We always celebrate another day of living. Uh, 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, we're going to go through the mail momentarily. But first, it is time for us to give one lucky person an opportunity to win some money. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Appreciate the uh, kind introduction there. Let's say hello to Dave in Ohio. Hello, Dave. Hey, good morning. I go to work early just so I can listen to your show. Oh, aren't you nice? Well, now I'm really rooting for you. Thank you. Um, all right, Dave. Uh, uh, what part of Ohio were you in? I'm over by the West Virginia Panhandle in the southeastern part of the state by Steubenville, Ohio. Oh, okay. Well, first in flight, right? First in flight. Um, okay. These Correct. are all. These are all pretty. Um, these are all pretty easy questions. And uh, if you're ever doubting what the answer is, it doesn't hesitate to guess William. That's always a much better guess than Willard. Okay. Check. W- Millard. W- exactly. All right. Uh, Dave, uh, so w- the, w- I'm, I'm assuming you've heard this since you're a regular listener. You know how the game goes, right? I have. I okay. do. Great. All right. Let's get started. Where does rain come from? Clouds. What is Bill a nickname for? William. What is the home city of the baseball team, the Phillies? Philadelphia. What TV doctor is running for U.S. Senate in Pennsylvania? Mehmet Oz. Who played Captain Kirk on Star Trek? Oh, no. Also, Denny Crane on Boston Legal hosted Rescue 911 for a while. T.J. Hooker. Yeah, I know it, but I've drawn a blank. You want to take a guess? Take a guess. Any Star Trek actor? Well, it's not Leonard. Close. No, I'm drawing a blank. Close. All right. Uh, it was um, William Shatner. William, yeah, Shatner. William Shatner. All right. Well, All right. well, thank you very much. Well, thanks, Dave. Dave, hang on. Uh, give your uh, contact information to Kenneth, and we will uh, we'll send you a prize of some sort, okay? That would be great. Thank person. you. Have a good day. Hey, you too. Thanks for listening, and um, I'm glad you're getting up early to listen, and uh, I'm sorry you didn't win. All right. Uh, Kenneth, take Dave's information, if you would. William Shatner. We would have just accepted William in all likelihood. Got to know Shatner, especially listening to this show. Come on. All right. Um, if you want to comment on uh, on anything that we're covering, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. In the meantime, uh, we have been uh, negligent in reading your correspondence. Good, bad, somewhere in between. Makes sense for us to at least give you an opportunity to be heard. It is time for... Letters. Let's find out what you got to say. 
This comes to us from Mia. My mom heard you last night. This is a couple days ago. My mom heard you last night discussing Arnold Palmer's, and she replayed the segment for me. I just wanted to thank you. You're welcome. I went to Kettle Black in Bay Ridge last week on a Thursday night with my boyfriend and ordered an Arnold Palmer. The waitress brought out to me what I now know is a John Daly. I don't drink. So I told the waitress I didn't order my drink with alcohol. And she chastised me and said, an Arnold Palmer is an alcoholic drink. I knew it wasn't, but was polite and just asked if she could make me another. When she dropped the drink off at the table, she said to me, next time, order an Arnold Palmer without vodka. I've been going crazy because I knew that it's a non-alcoholic beverage. But everyone told me I should suck it up. Because I went to a bar on a Thursday night, what else would I expect? But I knew that it was like a Shirley Temple. Next time a waitress tries to correct me, I will tell her I ordered an Arnold Palmer, not a John Daly. Well, that's a nice story there. And uh, and she's exactly right. She's exactly right. Arnold Palmer is an alcoholic drink, which makes what that Miller Brewing Company is doing so dangerous. You can't be selling an alcoholic drink as an Arnold Palmer. They should be selling a John Daly. Not an Arnold Palmer. Joanne Lotzko writes, um, Frank, do you not remember the weatherman, Willard Scott, that used to give the weather on TV? He used to say happy birthday to all the people over 100. Really nice guy. Sincerely, Joanne. Yes, of course I remember Willard Scott. I uh, actually uh, knew Willard Scott a little bit. Not well, but uh, we interacted a couple of times. And uh, he was always very complimentary towards me uh, on air. And I, I was uh, we did all tribute to him when he passed away. So, of course, I remember Willard Scott. Uh, Jack writes, subject, Dr. Crazy Jim. Oh, boy, here we go. Thank you for validating the reason why you and Curtis are the only hosts I listen to. Bless you. I'm not sure if that's uh, tongue-in-cheek or or what, but uh, thank you, Jim. I'm glad you're listening. Uh, Catherine writes, Hey, Frank, I'm watching House of the Dragon. They said good morrow. Never heard that other than from you. Ha-ha, interesting. Love your show. Thank you, Catherine. See, what we are on this show is a trendsetter. I guarantee you, you're going to be watching something, listening to something, encountering something, 10 months, a year from now, and you're going to say, I can't believe I heard them use the word, the term maple syrup. I've never heard that from anyone other than you. I can't believe I went up to the nutmeg state and everyone up there was saying the word Connecticut. I can't believe that people were complaining in the middle of summer about their mosquito bites. I can't believe that folks were hand, uh, comparing recipes to scrambled eggs. We are trend setters. <laughs> On this show. Well, today, good morrow. Tomorrow, scrambled eggs. Here we go. See, I told you so. Um, Cindy writes, on the subject of an anniversary celebration, my vote is for a listener's party in Atlantic City. Try the Ocean Casino. They have lots of space. Could just meet in one of the many bars. Um, Art Bell did the prediction calls at the end of each year. December 31st for the coming year. How about taking prediction calls for your anniversary date and review them then? Where will we be in September 2023? I feel like we did predictions in the run-up to um, in the, around New Year's, but that's not a bad idea, actually. I like the creative 
aspect of it. I'm sure whatever you decide will be fun. I like that idea. We'll do maybe an anniversary show in Atlantic City with listeners. That'd be fun. Uh, that would be that would be great. All right. This is uh, let's see here. Got a lot of email here. It's been a while. Um, Claude writes of my nutsedge problem, which get your mind out of the gutter. It has to do with grass. Hi, Frank. I was listening today and heard you talking about your nutsedge problem. What you need to use is a product called Sledgehammer. It's a herbicide which will kill off your nutsedge. Depending on how much you have, you might need to reseed in the fall. You can apply it every year as a preventative step. There's also a generic version of the same herbicide called Halo 75 WDG Select, which is somewhat cheaper. Also, I believe Ortho and other companies offer a product which you connect to your hose and spray as well. Remember, you can get rid of it in your yard, but if your neighbor has it, it can come back. Also, if you have a landscaper, he can bring it from another lawn which is infected. Aha! So maybe my landscaper who walks around with this holier-than-thou attitude, accusing us constantly of using miracle Grow, which we're not using, maybe he's responsible for our nutsedge problem. See? Hope this info helps, and good luck eradicating your nutsedge. Thank you, Claude. That's uh, very, very helpful. Okay, uh, see. Sheila writes, hi, Frank. Uh, thank you for voicing your position on the abused carriage horses. This is indeed animal abuse, but it goes on and on, heartbreaking and tragic. These poor souls don't deserve this treatment. Bill de Blasio was supposed to stop this. No surprise there. He did nothing. Eric Adams doesn't even address it. Thanks for caring, Sheila. Well, you're welcome, Sheila. I know a lot of people disagree with me, uh, but uh, that's certainly something that I feel strongly about. Um, Then, let's see here. Um, Jonathan. And that's kind of boring. Let's see. Let me pick another another good one here. Um, Let's see. This person, Jim, writes, good morning, Frank. After Bernie and Sid, you have the best show on the radio. You have educational and excellent interviews. Dr. Joe Galati gives good advice, but he implied that vegetables should be the primary food in a diet. You should consider interviewing Dr. Paul Saladino, who preaches a diet of meats, beef, organs, hunt, organ, beef, organs, okay, honey, raw milk, and fruit. Paul Saladino is a physician. By the same token, you should consider interviewing Dr. Joseph Merkula and Dr. Paul Gundry, who have unconventional views on health and diet. Health and diet are topics for entertaining and intelligent radio. Thank you, Jim. Well, I appreciate the advice there, Jim. Uh, that is uh, a good, you know, we'll, we'll, I'll put them on my list. I will, I will put it on my list. This is well. Um, I'll do one more here. Actually, hey, we got we got some time. We'll do uh, we'll do a few more. Um, Barb writes. This is from Wednesday morning. This is one one of the eggs. This is what Barb writes. Superb show tonight. Three hours with three excellent guests. If it ain't egg salad or omelets, it's pizza. That's in the aftermath of our interview with uh, uh, Scott from Scott's Pizza Tours. This was uh, this is interesting. This is from this person didn't sign his his or her name. Um, Frank, your comments on the air or an email to me would be greatly appreciated. First, the caller used the word this from yesterday, aestheticism to mean prejudice towards beauty. In fact, 
Its meaning is the acceptance of artistic beauty and taste as a fundamental standard, ethical and other standards being secondary. Therefore, in my humble opinion, the best word for your consideration that would define someone who is antithetical or prejudicial to beauty or good looks could very well be anti-esthetist. So, for instance, it's many of the anti-esthetists who are excoriating the Finnish Prime Minister, Santa Marin, for partying. Also, a question below, would it bother you if Rachel were partying a la Sana, or would you consider it inappropriate? Well, um, it would bother me if she was, uh, maybe, I think it would probably bother me if she was nuzzling with other guys, but that's because I'm her husband. I don't think if Rachel was the president or the prime minister, that would affect my voting for her or not. That's what I said in my comments about the prime minister. I said the person that should be worried about that would be her husband, not necessarily the public. It's not the public's business, as far as I'm concerned. Mike writes, "Um, thank you for taking my email, Reverend Morano. The perfect symbiotic relationship between employer and employee can best be described in this manner. The employee will only work hard enough to keep from getting fired, and the employer will only pay the employee enough to keep them from looking for another job. That's very profound, Mike. I usually get a lot of Seinfeld-related email from Mike. That's one of the that's one of the more more profound emails that I've gotten from Mike in in some time. Uh, all right, do one more here. Uh, let's see. Uh, Rich, Richard writes, on the subject, Curtis's remarkable use of audio clips. Seems Since he seems reluctant to discuss, can you? How does he find them? Who decides which to plug in, which when? May we assume this Bill Lee is his genius? Uh, near 4 a.m. last night, he went overboard on you. Not such why he bothers. I think he means not sure why he bothers. Picking on you is not his strongest broadcasting. Yeah, I got to tell you, Rich, you're exactly right. Curtis does use audio very well. And I'm sure Bill does play a a role in acquiring that audio. But uh, I think uh, Curtis has an ear for this himself. I mean, Curtis has not only been in radio for 30 years, but before that he was a big, he was a guest on radio and was a big radio listener. So he loves to use the term theater of the mind. And I think really when it comes to overnight radio, there are a few people that do it better than Curtis. And I think he does use audio very effectively. And Bill or Avery might be editing that audio or accumulating that audio. But I think the the orchestration of it and the selection of what audio to include, I'm pretty sure that's all Curtis himself. Honestly, Um, last one, last one. Ken writes, Frank, I was so sad when your interview with Malachi McCourt ended. I could have listened to him for hours and hours. My great-great-grandfather emigrated from County Limerick, Ireland in 1830, so I definitely have the Limerick connection, as does Malachi, and did his brother Frank, who wrote Angela's Ashes. Limerick was the poorest of all Irish counties, as their tales illustrate. One spring, a few decades ago, while working at a Barnes & Noble here in the Upper West Side, I was taken by surprise to hear someone singing Danny Boy directly in my ear. I turned to see Malachi McCord, who I did not know at the time. He convinced me to place his little gift book titled Danny Boy on our St. Patrick's Day display at the bookstore so that customers would see it and buy it. If you conduct a part two to that interview, uh, perhaps Malachi could belt out a chorus of Danny Boy 
for us all. Best wishes, Ken from Manhattan. That's not a great. That's not a bad idea, Ken. I actually will be working to put together a um, part two, and uh, hopefully it'll be sooner rather than later. All right, uh, Jim in New Hampshire writes, Frank, the other day my wife got angry because I woke her up. She wanted to know why I was laughing my butt off at 4.30 in the morning. <laughs> Willard Shakespeare? Your, your reaction was great. You tried so hard to be respectful but you couldn't hide your disbelief. P.S. There was Willard Scott. Yes, I know who Willard Scott is, everybody. I know Willard Scott very well. I practically raised his kids. All right, uh, we'll do 15 seconds of fame coming up in a couple of minutes. 800-848-9222. If you want to start queuing up, it's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. My thanks to Andy B. for this terrific theme song. It is uh, just terrific. And uh, he is, uh, you know, I didn't get a chance to listen to his Thanksgiving song over the weekend. I still have the CD. And uh, for whatever reason, I only come across the CD when I'm looking for something else. I have to make a note to myself to, uh, you know, to to make sure that I listen to that. Now, um uh, if you want to text me, 816-8-MORANO, that's 816-8-MORANO. I do prefer text messages to, uh, not from listeners, because I like the telephone host experience as in talk radio, but in terms of interpersonal communication, I do prefer um, text messaging to phone calls. It's less obtrusive. You don't have to answer it right away. You answer it when you get around to it, which I like. But there's a lot to be said for tone in the world of phone messages versus text messages. I'll give you one example. Um, I, you know, I had a lawyer. He's been, he'd been a guest on this show before. I had a lawyer that was helping me with some political matters, very skilled lawyer, he ends up going to uh, going to prison, right? And he, very, very bright guy, but uh, clearly, you know, he made some mistakes. And for whatever reason, the 
FBI came to pay me a visit with respect to him, and they wanted some material that he had given me. Okay, I'll spare you the details, not only because it's a long story, but also because I think that uh, it's you know it's not really relevant to the story we're saying. So, so I am in the midst of meeting with the FBI, and a friend of mine, my friend John, he had this same lawyer. So he was concerned about the situation. He happens to be calling me like crazy. He's calling me three, four times in a row while I'm in the midst of meeting with the FBI. So what do you do when someone's calling you and you can't talk? You text them back. I said, uh, in words or substance, I don't even remember this. I only know because John has told me about this. But in words or substance, I say, uh, can't talk, meeting with the FBI, you're next. Now, the way I meant it was, after I finish meeting with the FBI, I'll call you back next. So hold your horses, you could stop calling. What John thought I meant was that the FBI was coming to see him next. So John's telling me that he gets this text message on the golf course and he golfs the worst game of his life because he's so nervous that the FBI is going to come see him all because it wasn't reflected in the tone of my text message as if it, as I would have expressed it if it was on the telephone. All right. Speaking of telephone, we're going to give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. There are one, two, three open lines, 800-848-9222. Love to get some new people in there, new people. So if you've ever dreamt of being heard for 15 seconds, now's the time, 800-848-9222. Hey, speaking of Willard Scott, I, uh, I did come across this audio of when we had Willard Scott on the Joe Piscopo show maybe about eight years ago. Eight years ago, hard to believe. And he was uh, very complimentary towards me, who was producing the show at the time. This was Willard Scott talking with Joe and me about eight years ago. Joe Piscopo on the radio, AM 970, The Answer. It's 823, 9 degrees outside. Please be careful. Uh, we want to get the uh, the ultimate uh, authority in weather, the legend in weather. We are so fortunate to have with us the legendary Mr. Willard Scott to join us on the radio. Mr. Scott, welcome to the show. I'm telling you, you guys are great. And Frank ought to have his own show. I told him. <laughs> I think he does. You finish, you guys will own the city. Oh, you know what, Willard? I know you're a broadcaster uh, and an aficionado of broadcasting. If anybody knows talent, it's Willard Scott. Yeah, I just go. want to reiterate. Hey, Willard, the check is in the mail from Frank. He thanks you for that. Well, listen, I, I know talent. I don't have any talent, but I know talent. <laughs> Now, Willard Scott was a great guy. First of all, it was very nice of him to say that. He didn't have to do that. But he had been – he was not a meteorologist, and he didn't pretend to be a meteorologist. He had been a comedian. He had been a narrator. He had been a clown. He was, I think, Bozo the Clown. Um, Yeah, he was Bozo the Clown, one of the local Bozo the Clowns. And uh, really a great guy, an incredibly skilled pitch man, and somebody that uh, I really looked up to as a uh, as a broadcaster. And uh, there were a lot of interesting things written about him over the years. Not all of them were positive, but 
I think as a radio guy, as a television guy, he was absolutely uh, terrific. And I was very appreciative that he saw saw fit to mention me. I'm going to give you one. Here we go. It's Joe and Frank on 970, America's number one talk show. Willard Scott on the radio. Mr. Scott, thank you so now much. He's in the union. We have to pay him for now that. We gotta, we'll, we'll send you the small check that you'll get from the station, sir. I'll, I'll waive that one. Yeah, we'll give it to the snow cleaners in New York. We'll send the bill to Smuckers. Uh, yeah. Smuckers. I'll send you some Smuckers. Boy, that's good stuff. <laughs> thank you for the interview. It's good. It makes me feel like somebody... And uh, he went on to be just as as polite as you could possibly be. So, yes, I absolutely know who Willard Scott is. I just don't know who Willard Fillmore is. 800-848-9222. All right. Without further ado, let's give you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. Time for... Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Patrick is in Michigan. How are you doing? Uh, I would like to say that uh, uh, we need to surround Trump wherever he's at when they come to indict him. We need to surround all of us. need to surround the FBI. Jim in the Bronx. Susan Moron, Susan Moron. Mike in New Jersey. Morning, Frank. Frank, some famous Willards. Willard Scott, obviously, has been mentioned. And Willard Stiles, the friend of the rats, Ben and Socrates from the movie. And the most famous Canadian actor... Willard Shatner. Tony in Brooklyn. Hey, what's going on, Frank? I don't know how that guy didn't know that, that question with William Shatner. I mean, come on. I mean, everybody should have known that. But anyway, if we can't trust the Department of Justice, Frank, who can we trust? Who can we trust? E. Frank in Astoria. Yes, uh, Frank. Uh, Curtis Lee was one of the strongest uh, critics of Mayor Eric Adams. I think Eric Adams should put him in the Hall of Fame of the politically and religious unfit individuals of humanity. Mike on Staten Island. Hey, Frank. Um, is it possible that Willard Scott's parents would... And uh, that's why they named them Willard? Uh, you know, uh, you broke up there. I think I missed the punchline. Call back tomorrow. Give us the joke again. Uh, Cousin Brucey joining me tomorrow. I'm excited. Frank Moreno, good day.